This episode of Zero Brightness is brought to you by you. You can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness to sign up to support the show directly and get bonus content multiple times per week. Thank you to everyone who supports the show, and I look forward to meeting more of you soon. Video game movies are cursed. And I know that just sounds like a dramatic way to say that they're bad. But if you sort of go back to some of the early big examples of movies that were based off of video games, it really does feel like they were actually cursed. You know, looking at the production of movies like Super Mario Brothers or Street Fighter, you know, these were productions that were hampered by problems like addiction, illness, injury, death, and of course, corporate meddling. For a long time, it felt like you just couldn't make a good movie based off of a video game. It was just a a fruitless endeavor. There's no way to make it happen. So it's nice to see that over time, we have gotten some good video game movies, right? And the last time that video game movies were covered on this very show, we picked a couple examples of good ones. One of them really, really good. I do still think that Fatal Frame is the best movie based on a video game. But they're not all like that. And to sort of frame video game movies as good is really some bizarre selective memory type of bullshit, right? So today I thought it would be interesting to maybe take a little bit of a deeper dive to look at some other adaptations that run the gamut from very good to very bad, and in between, of course, the very weird. I'll be joined by a couple of very special guests and experts to help me figure out why video game movies are the way they are. And maybe by the end of this, we'll have some answers. So with that, welcome to episode 92 of Zero Brightness. did video game movies get this reputation? Well, let's go back to the early 90s, shall we? I think it was at this time that in Western markets, video game companies were realizing that they needed to have film adaptations, or at least that it would be a good business move to grow the brand, get more eyes on the product, etc, etc. You know, This whole concept of a video game movie or a video game adaptation had already been pretty common in Japan, but we were just starting to get it in the West. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. 
You know, and as you can imagine, there were still a lot of cultural differences at the time, you know, and there was a lot of miscommunication between some of these Japanese companies who owned and managed the biggest licenses in video games and the Western production companies that were going to actually make the films that these movies were based on. So, for me, I feel like ground zero for these is Super Mario Brothers. The 1993 film sort of very loosely based on the Super Mario Brothers video games. Now, if you are around my age, you probably remember or at least have some vague memories of this movie coming out because it was a huge deal. I mean, the biggest franchise in gaming, the most recognizable characters in video games were getting their own live action movie. I mean, it was truly bonkers. But even more bonkers was the movie itself. Now, Super Mario Brothers isn't a bad movie necessarily, but it is incredibly strange. Uh, it's almost like a grim, dark, almost like steampunky reimagining of the Super Mario Bros. franchise, which is incredibly bizarre. And it bears very little resemblance to the games that it was based on. It's not fun, bright, cartoony, colorful, nothing. What it is, is very, very confusing. And I think a lot of that goes back to how it came to be. I mean, essentially, this movie was developed by a very small production company that somehow sort of like conned Nintendo into giving them the rights to the Mario Brothers movie to develop into an actual film. Well, saying they conned them makes it sound a lot shadier than it was. What it really seems to have happened is that Nintendo had no experience in this field. They didn't know what they were doing, and they just sort of decided to roll the dice with this company on making a Super Mario Brothers movie, which is how we got this super bizarre, insane movie that we eventually did. Just a year later, we'd get another bizarre video game adaptation. This time, the Street Fighter film from 1994. Street Fighter is also a very, very weird movie that doesn't really have a lot to do with the original property. But in this case, it's a lot easier to see how this film ended up being so weird and bad. So the initial idea for this was that they were going to give the film to Steven D'Souza, who was a very famous screenwriter at the time. Um, he had written movies like Commando and Die Hard. He was a bigwig, but he wasn't a director. So he decided that he wanted to do a project that he wrote and directed. Somehow, Street Fighter ended up being that project. Now, this presented a lot of problems for the film because he just didn't have the experience. He wasn't a director and he didn't really know what he was doing. This was also coupled with the fact that they were shooting in Thailand and cutting a lot of corners to try and keep the budget low. So the film's shoot was incredibly dangerous. There were a bunch of stunts gone wrong, you know, there's a bunch of accidents, things like that. And then add to it the fact that Capcom was repeatedly intruding on the production and asking them to put in more characters, to showcase more characters. 
Because for them, they had just decided this was only a ploy to sell video games. They didn't really care about the final product as a movie. They just wanted people to see cool character and then go buy whatever, you know, Street Fighter game in order to play as that character. As you can imagine, it's not exactly the best way to structure and make a film. So it ended up being a huge mess. There were also personnel issues. Sadly, Raul Julia, who plays the main villain, M. Bison in the movie, was actually very sick at the time that he shot the movie, and I believe he passed away before the movie even came out. R.I.P. to a great. On a lighter note, though, why was Jean-Claude Van Damme cast as Guile? Why did the muscles from Brussels play all-American hero Guile? These mysteries will be lost to time, like tears in the rain. The next big video game adaptation film that we got was Mortal Kombat in 1995. Now, Mortal Kombat marks a big turning point for a number of reasons. First of all, it's directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, uh, which most people listening will probably know as the director of the Resident Evil movies, which I'll talk about in a minute. And with Mortal Kombat, he kind of established his style that he uses when he's doing a video game adaptation. And that is essentially that he just makes something that's serviceable. You know, it's not the best movie you've ever seen. It's not even a standout in any way. It's just vaguely based on a game that you like, and it's a serviceable action movie. I mean, looking at Mortal Kombat objectively, it has a lot of problems. The acting is pretty hokey. The fighting is very bad. If you watched like actual like martial arts films at the time, this movie looked pretty goofy. Not to mention the fact that for like the 80th time in his career, Christopher Lambert plays a non-white person. Why? Why? I digress. The point here is that Mortal Kombat is not an amazing movie or a groundbreaking movie, but it did introduce video game fans to Paul W.S. Anderson and his style of just serviceable action movies. Which is kind of how we get to the next phase of video game adaptations, which happened in the 2000s. Now, this all was kickstarted by the Resident Evil movie, which came out in 2002. Uh, I'm sure at some point I'll talk in more detail about this movie, but, you know, the first Resident Evil movie is, like, fine. It has very little to do with the Resident Evil franchise besides maybe some slight references here and there and some terminology, but it's, once again, it's a serviceable action movie. It's definitely more influenced by 2000s-era sci-fi horror, like Cube, than it is any game in the Resident Evil series. Uh, but it's it's fine, you know? It's a fun romp. It's just an action movie. And it was successful and led to a whole series of these movies that all sort of took the same tack. You know, the second one tried to bring in a little bit more of the series flavor and some characters, but ultimately doesn't really have much to do with the games and is still just a serviceable action movie, which is the lane that Anderson has stayed in since then, and it seems to be doing well for him. I'm not the biggest fan, but 
I don't know. If it ain't broke, don't, etc., etc. Now, the other big figure in video game adaptations in the 2000s was uh, far more ignominious. Uh, the infamous Uva Bull is, of course, who I'm thinking of. Uva Bull was a director who was notorious for just getting the rights to video game movies or somehow convincing publishers to let him make these movies based on video games and then making these absolutely horrendous fucking movies. Uh, you know, he made movies based on House of the Dead, Alone in the Dark, and Blood Rain, uh, among others, uh, including Postal. Man, I just fucking remember the Postal movie, Jesus Christ. And there's more. I won't get into it. But Uvo Bull became notorious. Everybody hated this guy. Critics constantly savaged this guy to the point that he actually challenged some critics to a boxing match uh, where he just invited them into the ring to get pummeled. Um, he seems to be a gigantic asshole, and he's made a lot of very fucking horrible movies. So that is to say that, you know, from the late 90s into the 2000s, I think video game adaptations sort of gained a very negative reputation. Even though they weren't all bad, People generally expected them to be schlocky, low quality, just overall not great. And it was into that environment that the Silent Hill movies were released. I think the Silent Hill movies are really interesting because they sort of run the gamut of what can work for a video game adaptation and what can just totally sink a video game adaptation. There's great parts, there's terrible parts, and across these two films, you sort of get a master class in how to make a video game adaptation and how not to make one. I'm now joined by my friend and returning guest, Whitney Chavis. Tell me pick apart the finer points of the Silent Hill movies. Let's go. All right, so... Whitney, I've asked you on the show to talk to you about the Silent Hill movies. Uh, okay, cool. <laughs> because the theme of the episode that this is going to be part of is like video game movie adaptations or, you know, movie or TV adaptations. Okay. And I think the Silent Hill movies, I've talked about them a bunch already. Uh, there's an episode of Demon Daddies about it. We've talked about it a little bit on Zero Brightness. And so I just, I thought it'd be interesting to talk to someone who's like a Silent Hill expert about these movies. Yeah, I'm curious, how did you feel about, like, the first Silent Hill movie released in 2006? Were you already a fan then, and, like, how did you feel about that movie? Yeah, I was, I, I was already a fan for seven years by that point. <laughs> I mean, for, sorry, nine years. <laughs> sure, sure. So, yeah, I was, I was a big fan of the original game, and when it was announced, I was stoked. I was like, oh... My, I can see my favorite game on the big screen, and I knew that they were making some changes, you know, making the protagonist a mother instead of a father, and I was like, whatever, it still looks really cool. The trailer drop, that that, that scene, the first Otherworld shift was amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I really, I liked it, but... I was also disappointed. It was very different from the actual game. Like, it took some of the themes and the atmosphere and the music and whatnot, but it wasn't the first game. It was a real loose, loose, loosey-goosey adaptation of the first game. And I think 
I let my expectations for a, a, a direct adaptation kind of like cloud my judgment, and I kind of went in with too too high of an expectation in that in that regard. For sure. Well, it's it's interesting to watch now because I I kind of felt the same way going into it that you did. I mean, when this movie came out, I was a, a big fan of Silent Hill, and I was ready for this movie. I mean, we had already gotten like some Resident Evil movies at this point, and those are, I mean, those are what they are. Uh, they're really not Resident Evil at all. They're like just a fine action series, but they don't have anything to do with the game. So I was sort of expecting something like that, but the, the movie looked really good. I, I felt that there was a lot of respect for the, the game games itself. Like there was heart put into it mm-hmm. while the Resident Evil, maybe the later ones, maybe not so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for sure. Cause like I even, I enjoy the first two Resident Evil movies, even though they're really dumb, uh, mm-hmm. but they have almost nothing to do with Resident Evil besides like, co- like uh, buzzwords, you know, okay. Umbrella, T-virus, zombies, like, it's almost like they're playing Mad Libs, but everything else is just, like, <laughs> something different. It, it was a bunch of references, mainly. Like, hey, you remember this thing from this game? Yeah. It's in here, but it's, it's very surface level. And they did their own story. I, I think it would have been better if they didn't try to shoehorn in the actual game protagonists. Mm-hmm. I mean, after the first movie, it was like why are you doing this? It's obvious it's about Alice. Just make it about Alice. She doesn't have to interact with all of the protagonists. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in the second movie, when they when they try and kind of, like, throw in characters from the game, it's sort of laughable, where you're just like, okay? like Or like, oh, yeah, they put the liquor in, but also he gets run over by a motorcycle for no reason. <laughs> it's like, you know what, guys? I don't know what you're on to, but Silent Hill is interesting because it's not like that, but I did sort of like crack the code upon this watch through of the movie. And this is probably really obvious to most people, but I just never noticed this. Um, Silent Hill is basically an adaptation of the first game done entirely in the style of the ring, you know, like the... 2001 American horror movie that's an adaptation of a Japanese horror movie, right? On this watch through, I noticed that there are a ton of similarities between Silent Hill and The Ring. Um, And some of them are kind of surface level things, but I think the big thing is that the way that The Ring adapted Ringu, the Japanese original, and the way that Ringu adapted the original novel it's based on is kind of the same approach that Silent Hill takes. So they switch the sort of gruff male protagonist for a more relatable woman protagonist. Um, Also stars a blonde Australian actress who has that kind of... Naomi Watts, right? Yeah, like, she has that same look, uh, which is also really fun. I didn't know she was Australian until I sort of had this thought, and I was like, I wonder if she's Australian. Uh, Yeah, that's uh, Rada Mitchell, the lead actress. Yeah, Rada Mitchell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting that I think the way that the ring... Uh, was adapted is that they sort of took the original novel and they did a big cleanup on it. And, you know, 
what what I mean by that is that they kind of went in and they took the big ideas and the things that would work in like a mainstream kind of action adventure horror movie and they sort of left everything else on the cutting room floor and that is an effective way to do an adaptation but it also can sometimes like ruin it for fans of the original uh but i did think it was interesting i was like oh they kind of did this the same way so like the original novel uh you know that the ring is based on has a lot of like kind of strange like philosophical underpinnings in it and the movie really doesn't have any of that it's just like a weird like adventure horror movie silent hill is kind of the same way i feel you know okay (laughs) i've i've only seen i've only seen the american um remake of the ring so i actually don't really know how much changed between the novel and the original Ringu and the American remake. Sure. Well, I did notice, so one thing with this, the movie Silent Hill, I feel like they try to either explain or clean up some of the like magical thinking that's in the original game, you know? Um, th- did you get that sense? Yeah, they kind of tried to instead of the, the the cult as we know it in the video game, they try to make it akin to something a, a lot of people are already aware of, which is like witch burning and that sort of mindset. When I don't think the whole uh, trying to impregnate a child to birth a demonic uh, or malicious uh, deity would be as easy to swallow as someone burning someone for being a witch. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a little bit, a little bit easier to swallow than the actual uh, plot of the first game. Yeah, for sure. Well, and even like I think that the way that they sort of write in the cult and the way that they write in. Uh, the kind of like history of the town is all meant to make it more palatable for people who have no idea what the games are or have never played the games, you know? Yeah, yeah, and also they made the the choice of of having the town actually be an abandoned ghost town. Um, they still have like the different like dimensions of from the game we see, um, but they actually made it so the town didn't really exist anymore. Uh, It wasn't populated. It was abandoned due to the coal fires, which was uh, an addition made by Roger Avery. He based it on Centralia, which now unfortunately makes it to the listicles as being the inspiration behind the Silent Hill game. It's like, no, it's not, but okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I think there's lots of little choices that they make in order to make it just more sensible and like easier to follow for an average viewer, which is, you know, that's a big thing in the ring is like removing some of the more like specifically Japanese cultural references, removing some of the really out there stuff like in that adaptation they just remove a whole character who's really central to the story because he's just really weird and off-putting and nothing what did he what did did he do like well he's sort of like this mysterious character that like 
guides the main character through his whole like quest of trying to solve the mystery of the videotape but he's like this really horrible crazy guy (laughs) you know and yeah he's really a strange character and so when you when you watch the movie it's like okay i get it i get why you would just change it to like her ex-boyfriend who's sort of likable you know like (laughs) that makes sense again it's like making it more palatable yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and so the setup of the movie is essentially that there is a, a couple. It's Rose and her husband, Christopher. Uh, and they have an adopted daughter named Sharon. Um, mm-hmm. Sharon has these nightmares that lead the couple to, you know, try and figure out what's going on. And Rose decides to go rogue and take Sharon back to Silent Hill because she keeps yelling it in her sleep. Um and sleepwalking, like walking towards the town or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she almost walks off a cliff in the first scene, which is very strange. Uh, this movie also, the first 15 minutes of this movie are really weird. Like, it really takes its time to kind of like get going. Once it gets going, it's like good. But the first 15 minutes are like so bizarre. Uh, this is something I noticed on this watch through. So... She goes back to Silent Hill and then sort of a weird version of the plot of the first game kicks off, you know. I think the best best part happens when she goes down that alley. I was just jumping in my seat going, oh god, it's it's the actual angles from the game. They're recreating it. <laughs> it's yeah, amazing. Exactly. Like after you get past that first like 15 minute segment, they essentially recreate the beginning of the original game. Um mm-hmm. You know, she wakes up from a car crash, her kid's gone, she starts exploring the town, she walks down an alley and the same weird camera swoop happens as in the game. Um, She ends up in kind of a courtyard that's filled with the weird little, a pretty interesting take on the little kind of baby monsters from Mm. the original Silent Hill. I actually think... Yeah, the the demon kids with the knives. Yeah, I actually think they did a good job of like adapting that. Um... Yeah, and then the game just kind of, or the movie just kind of leads you through this little, almost like greatest hits segment of scenes from Silent Hill 1 and Silent Hill 2. Uh, Yeah, yeah, there's lots of iconic moments where you're like, oh shit, like I remember um, a little bit later when they're in the hotel and they have to cross over into the like ceremonial room, she like steps through a, like a fire escape door into another building and there's like that alleyway and like, she has a jump and she loses her knife and it's like, oh my god, that's a scene from Silent Hill 2 going into the next um, apartment building and mm-hmm. little things like that, like a fan would recognize, get them excited. I thought that was nice nods Yeah. the film. For sure. And I think, and this is like, I really think this is the best part of the movie. It's like that little kind of like after the intro, there's that segment where Rose is just sort of exploring Silent Hill. And I think it just really nails the vibe and the visual design of Silent Hill. Like, yeah, they re- they recreated the street too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. And even some of the stuff that isn't ripped directly from the game. Like there's a scene where she goes into a bathroom um, that is really similar to something from, I think Silent Hill 2 and 3 kind of have a scene like this. Uh, But then this monster comes out and 
like attacks her and that whole scene i mean i don't think that monster is like from the game specifically uh Uh, colin uh that was made especially for the movie they actually created the character pretty much the day before shooting oh really yeah yeah well it's crazy because yeah that that's what i thought i didn't think it was from the games but like the style of the monster the way the scene is shot the effects and everything is really cool um and like it really feels like it's from silent hill you know yeah i thought they did a good job in terms of distinguishing the different like kind of layers of of your experience you got the fog world you got the fiery, uh, rusty other world, and I liked how they kind of showed. I mean, even though Chris, Chris's little segments in the in the movie were kind of shoehorned in because of studio interference, they they felt that there needed to be more male males in the movie. Huh. Uh, I did I did like the scene where they sort of cross paths, but they're on different planes. Uh, you got Rose in the other world, and then Chris in the real world, and he still like he feels her presence and smells her perfume. And it's like, oh, that's really cool. That you know, they're kind of showing that shift that she's stuck in another dimension or plane or whatever. I, I really liked that part of the movie as well too. Yeah, I remember at the time I was really impressed that they overcame what I thought would be one of the biggest challenges of doing a Silent Hill adaptation which would be trying to represent the different layers of Silent Hill and trying to show a viewer like how the sort of metaphysics of Silent Hill works. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it sort of makes sense inherently when you're playing the game. But then if you take a step back, you're like, Oh, this is a little bit, once again, it's kind of that magical thinking thing. And if you saw it in a movie, it might not make sense, but I thought they did a really good job of representing that personally. Yeah, I was I was really impressed. They even went uh, I forgot the name of the actual place, but uh, they used a real town in Canada. It was going to be demolished, so okay. that like whole street thing was like a real town. And they basically went in and they would they put facades of of, of stores from the games that fans would be able to pick out, like Nathan's uh, drugstore, uh, Annie's tailoring, stuff like that. And they, I loved how much real sets and real practical effects were used yeah. in the first movie, which, so rewatching it years later, it's, there's some awkward scenes, you know, CG stuff that you can definitely see now, um, but it still really holds up. And it's the same reason like Jurassic Park holds up. It's because they had practical effects and it doesn't look goofy it yeah. it doesn't look goofy and i think that's why it feels like it has a real respect for the source material mm-hmm. like they really try to make like a realistic silent hill experience well i totally agree with that and i think that they did a good job adapting the designs as well because like mm-hmm. like you're saying there's a lot of practical effects which is awesome but even some of the cg stuff that like the fidelity of it is not amazing now because this movie's like you know almost 15 years old now uh yeah. the design is still good so there's like oh like that's still a cool design like obviously it would look better if the cg was done now but yeah it, it's interesting how they, how they did some of that really well um but you know there's something you said earlier i think is interesting you can definitely also tell that 
just like in a lot of other video game adaptations, many of which are far worse movies, like, you know, uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie or like the Street Fighter movie. Oh, I love the Super Mario Brothers movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I do too, but it's kind of like, it's so ridiculous, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But you can tell like that there was a lot of meddling from either studios or the rights holders to be like, oh, this thing needs to be in there, you know? So, like, there's some stuff... Oh, yeah, so, like, I think that's actually insane that they said that there need to be more men on screen, so they inserted that, like, really pointless subplot about... Yeah, Sean Bean. Yeah, looking for looking for Rose with yeah. um, Officer Gucci. Uh, yeah, like apparently in the beginning he was only supposed to be in the beginning and the end. Yeah, and it was really a female-driven uh, story, female-driven with the characters and whatnot. And the studio was like, I don't know about that. We don't think it's gonna do well with audiences. You need to put more of men in there. And what's funny is like. The reviews at the time, most of the, like the bad stuff were like his scenes were dragging. They wanted to get back to the action with Rose. It's like that we don't care about him and his character. Why see yeah. this movie? You could remove the scenes and we, yeah, no, uh, no big effects. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, a pacing problem. Like it kind of slams on the brakes whenever he shows yeah. up. <laughs> um, there's that one good scene that you mentioned earlier where he's kind of like in the same place as Rose but they're in different planes of existence Mm -hmm. Um, and everything else could have just been cut there's also a couple of lines in this movie that hit really different in 2021 and one of them is in that scene when Officer Gucci is like hey you need to put your mask on (laughs) yeah I remember I was rewatching it I think for a commentary I think on Reliant Horror and we're like, oh my god, it was ahead of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> put on so, your mask. Yeah, come on, you idiot, put your mask on. Uh, I need you to put on your mask. <laughs> <laughs> the other one that felt really relevant is when uh, Sybil uh, cuffs Rose and makes her walk, and she goes, fuck you, you stupid cop. I was like, hell yeah, that's my mm-hmm. vibe. Well, so yeah, okay, in, in terms of like studio meddling, another thing I noticed is like, Pyramid Head is here. And I mm-hmm. feel like that must have been somebody. Maybe you know the answer. Was that somebody just being like, we need Pyramid Head? <laughs> no, I don't think so. If I remember correctly, there's there's been a couple of scripts of this of this movie. And one of them, the ending, instead of... Uh, it was cut due to budget reasons. But they originally wanted Alessa to, to annihilate the, the cult with a bunch of Pyramid Heads. Mm. So it seemed like he was always supposed to be there. He was okay in this first movie, you know, he was just sort of a threatening being. I kind of took issue with how he was used in the second movie. They made him more like of a guardian creature for Alessa. It was weird having his, you know, second job as a carny and it it just, it didn't work. Um, But I wasn't too upset with his inclusion in the movie. It seemed odd. I mean, but we were seeing other Silent Hill 2 creatures in the movie. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of iconic. Yeah. don't fault them. Fault them for doing that. But... Yeah, I agree. I think it's mostly in the second one that I was like, why is this here? But it is funny to go back to the first one and see that, like, like you were saying, I mean, there's so much stuff that's just pulled right from the first game. 
And, and there's some from the second game too, but it was just like, oh, okay, here's Pyramid Head. Thank you for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to support us directly, you can go to patreon.com slash zero brightness. You can also find and interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. All the relevant links are at zerobrightness.com. We'll see you out there. I kind of feel like, you know, upon rewatching it, Pyramid Head, I'm like 50-50 on. Like some of the scenes he's in are really awesome, once again, because of the visual design being really cool. But there's other scenes where I was just like, I don't know why this is happening. Like, there's a really weird scene where they get like stuck in like a like a almost like an engine room or something. There's like a bunch of fans and stuff. Oh, the, in the in the boiler room. In the boiler room. That's what. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And like, I just always thought that was so goofy. Like his big muscly arm trying to like open the door while a bunch of like giant bugs are in there. Something about that was just like, yeah. Why is this happening? <laughs> I don't know, but it still looked. It looked. It was exciting to have yeah. like this. In, like large creature, you don't you don't really know his story. Just suddenly be there, and you're like, all you can do is run away, and now you're trapped. And I don't know, it was just a, it was an excited exciting moment in in the movie. But I, I get where you're coming from. It's like why? <laughs> it seems like the answer was because it's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, that that's exactly what it is. I remember. Uh, he they originally wanted to do his original style helmet, but uh, the guy who did the choreography and and plays Pyramid Head, they just could not get that to work. Like he could not like do the movements without falling over. So they redesigned the helmet into the you know the one we know now. I always thought that was kind of funny that they found that it was too cumbersome to actually do movements in. It's like, oh, I guess that kind of fits his character. Why he moves so slowly in the second game, he can barely yeah. <laughs> barely move forward in his helmet. Yeah, for sure, dude. That head is just way too big. Exactly. <laughs> so another big change, I think, and, and this one I think is kind of interesting, is that they decided to take the character of Sybil from Silent Hill 1, who's mm-hmm. kind of a very ancillary character in the game. Like, she shows up when she needs to, um, but you don't get a whole lot of, like, personality from her. Um, in she's, this- she's, th- she's there to give a gun and then say, everybody must be on drugs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, later there's, like, a, a, a plot point with her, sort of, but... Uh, yeah, it's interesting. In this movie, they decide to rewrite her as like this really strong character who has a ton of personality and is really like a main one of the main driving forces in the plot. Yeah, yeah. I I actually didn't mind that because it, it was kind of painting her in a more heroic light. I mean, yeah, Sybil's character. I thought was pretty cool in the game. I mean, here she is stuck in this town and she's trying to find a way out. And once she realizes this isn't possible, she's like, you know what? I'm going to help this dude out. We're going to find her together. You know, this is batshit insane, but I'm here and I'm going to do what I can. And I feel it was kind of same thing in this movie. They just kicked it up a notch where she had this gut feeling that there was something wrong with Rose and her daughter. I mean, she 
was wrong, she thought maybe that Rose was going to take her to Silent Hill to throw her down a mine shaft or whatever, do something to her. Yeah. Uh, she misunderstood the situation, but her heart was in the right place. And what bothered me the most about her character was how she just gave up at the end. Like, she let Rose go down the elevator and then let these cultists beat the shit out of her. It's like, uh, okay. And then she died. And and I found that upsetting. I was like, ugh. You know, she could have threw more punches. Or, I don't know. It just seemed like she gave up <laughs> at that point yeah. in time. No, for sure. Yeah, because so Sybil's character, I think, is awesome in this movie for most of it because she's just like a super badass. And in, they do a cool arc of having her be just like really pushy and annoying, you know, which is why Rose is like, fuck you. But then they start working together and you see like, oh, she's she's actually cool and she's badass and she wears leather pants and mm-hmm. will shoot at Pyramid Head. Like, that's all pretty cool, right? Uh, but yeah, I feel like her character arc at the end is kind of where the whole movie goes at the end. I think the end of this movie, or at least the last like third of this movie kind of is not great. Like kind of, it kind of like, there's a lot going on. Yeah. It was, it was an exposition dump, which sucked. Yeah. I, I thought it was messy. The ending was definitely a messy part of the movie. I I think it could have been, handled a bit better to convey the backstory and stuff so like okay the the structure of the movie like i said earlier there's sort of like a little intro part where you establish your characters learn about the scenario then there's kind of this second act where rose is exploring silent hill tons of nods to the original game visually and otherwise i mean there's tons of music from the game um yep in this movie. A lot of Akiriyama's work. It, some of it was uh, re-recorded with the help of like uh, Jeff Dana, mm-hmm. uh, but it, they basically took the video game soundtrack, mainly Silent Hill 2, but it was mainly, it was 1 through 4 that they were taking music from, and they made it more cinematic to fit the movie, which I thought was great because it really did get me into the, the Silent Hill mood. It oh, felt yeah. like I was experiencing another game just just on the big screen so i'm really glad that uh, um hans made the decision to bring in akira it was like a big deal for him um so yeah lots of lots of tracks which was wonderful yeah i totally agree i think this movie would be way different and not as good like without the actual like yamaoka music in it and mm-hmm. some of the yeah some of the re-recordings that are like drastic are actually really cool um, like there's some that are arranged for like piano and stringed instruments that I noticed when I was watching. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like I hadn't noticed that before. I think True was one of them. They, they use that track a lot throughout the movie for Alessa's theme. I think it's True. Yeah, I think um, you're right. And, and it didn't sound like, I don't know if this is maybe shows just how great of a composer Kira is, but it didn't sound like a video game music. It sounded like a movie soundtrack. You know, just on its own. Uh, They didn't have to do too much to change it up for the movie. Yeah. It it didn't take you out of the movie experience. I guess what I'm trying to say, there wasn't this disconnect where you're like, oh, that's obviously from the video game. You know, it didn't sound 
too different from anything else you'd hear in a movie. Yeah, which is something that I've been harping on for a couple of years now, that the the music in Silent Hill is just world-class. And yeah, yeah. It, it fits the vibe of the movie completely. It doesn't sound like it was shoehorned in at all. And there's a lot of music. I mean, there's a lot of music in this movie. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting if you're like me and you just love Silent Hill music, you almost don't notice it. But I got about halfway through this movie and I was like, wow, there are so many musical cues. But I don't think it's it's not bad (laughs) at all. It's just like, oh, wow, they just like really plastered music in every scene. But the music is so good and it fits the vibe. So it's great, you know? Yeah. It's like they took every opportunity to fit another track in there. I, I was I remember I was in the theater and it was just after Rose got out of Midwich, or no, sorry, she was going towards Midwich, mm. and she had to follow the bus bus uh, uh, route yeah. to the school, and then a Wounded War song started playing. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. like, I didn't expect to hear that, but it, I mean, it's from Silent Hill 4, but it, it fits so well with just that one little sequence, and I, I really loved it. Um, they, they, they chose really good tracks for this movie. Well, very well done. Yeah, I had that exact same moment watching this again because I was like, <laughs> I love that song, and yeah, that feels like a deep cut in the in terms of like Silent Hill music. I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of of the the end battle, but I loved them incorporating the Silent Hill three boss battle music when Alessa came rising up um, into the church. I was like, oh, it, I just felt a chill just with that track. And uh, yeah, it's stuff like that just makes me kind of giddy to talk about the movie because it's those little moments that there are, there are some parts I didn't like about the movie, but there are just so many good moments that I just kind of focus on. I'm like, oh, you know, I really do like this movie. You know, yeah. I don't agree with everything they did, but there's a lot of good in here. That's why I think it's a really good adaptation, a video game adaptation movie compared to what we had, especially before then. It, it, you really felt, like I said before, the love and care. Like You could tell they cared about the series in those little moments. Oh, yeah. No, I big agree. Especially, I remember at the time, like, when I got the DVD right when it came out, and, like, you can watch a making-of featurette about the movie, mm-hmm. and you can hear the director, Christoph Gans, say that, like, you know, he's a fan of the series, and the people who are in charge of the creative were, like, fans of the series and really wanted to pay their respect to it um it was cool because yeah you get that feeling even not knowing that like you get the feeling from watching the movie Mm -hmm. for sure like it took him five years to convince konami and he basically to actually convince them he made his own little mini like movie and sent it to them it's like please let me let me adapt this for the big screen And, and and his passion is what got him the okay they're like okay fine Totally. It definitely has that feel where it's like, okay, the people who made this love the series, you know, they love what this is based on. So yeah, even though it has problems, and I do want to talk about some of the stuff that I don't like, especially towards Mm -hmm. the end, but yeah, even though it has problems, it is overall a good movie. And especially just if you're a fan, it hits so many notes for you. Yeah, just I think the music thing is is such a great example of that because you hear little music cues that you're just like, oh, you know, Mm -hmm. I didn't expect to hear that in this movie and it works super well you know or you see like a, a sign in the background and you're like oh i know that area <laughs> you know? yeah t- 
totally. The the visual nods are, are really, really cool in that way. If you're kind of like spotting Easter eggs and stuff. He even brought like a television to the set, like a, like a 40 inch or 50 inch. And, and they had a PS2 hooked up and they were, he would play the game and like show the crew, like this is what, this is the shot I want to recreate. And so they would recreate it on the set. They had that on set to recreate certain scenes in the actual video game, which I thought was really cool. It showed his passion. I think he even got some of the uh, principal actors to, to play through the game. Well, I don't think uh, Jill Jodell played through it. She was a child, but, yeah. but like uh, Rada Mitchell and <laughs> stuff like that had them had them play or, or watch some of the video games. So they kind of knew where they were coming from. I always thought that was a really kind of cool thing to hear that he was that passionate about it. Yeah, and there are definitely moments in the movie that feel a lot like the game, not just for a visual reference or because there's a, a music cue that you're familiar with, but just because like there's some weird dialogue and just some odd like acting choices that, <laughs> you know, if you look at it one way, it's kind of like, oh, well, maybe that's just bad. But if you look at it another way, it's like, well, it kind of fits. In, in the sense that they're it trying to... kind of reminds make, me of Silent Hill 2. <laughs> yeah, like, if they're trying to make something that was that much, like, the source material, it's actually a pretty good tactic. Like, I really can't fault them for that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, as you're watching the movie, after you get past this kind of initial phase where Rose explores Silent Hill, and, you know, she meets Sybil, they pair up, and they kind of see almost every level of Silent Hill, right? Like they've seen the the fog world, the rust world, and they've gone to like the super dark, I don't know, Silent Hill basement, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. For lack of a better term in my mind. And so then the movie starts establishing that there is actually a world in Silent Hill and people who live there. And that's mm-hmm. actually an interesting choice that I don't think the movie totally nails, you know? Cause it's like, a little awkward. Yeah. Like, it's not a bad idea, but the way that they chose to do it is weird. Basically, they establish that there's a cult that lives there. It's very, like, Children of the Corn-esque, where, like, they're all kind of, like, strange and old-timey. Um, and they're led by this like priestess and they live in a church and their whole existence is sort of based around avoiding the horrors and monsters that are out in Silent Hill by like being devout to this, this church and to this leader. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Children of the corn. Uh, I think it got worse. I think it it was made worse by the sequel. Yeah. uh, When, they kind of retcon some things and I don't know it it worked in the first movie because it was kind of its own thing and then trying to make it into the order or the cult from the games just did not it did not fit um once you actually find why that they're why they're living there it makes sense you know they're they're trapped they're trapped there they're trapped in this other plane due to Alessa's anger of what they did to her it makes sense but it, it, again it is a little bit awkward we're just like what why are these people okay yeah well and that's like I think the reason that the last third of the movie kind of falls flat for me is all rooted in that because basically you know they get there 
they discover this cult of people and they quickly realize that they're all like zealots who hate witches and they want to they accuse everyone of being a witch and they're totally into burning people at the stake and so they kind of figure this out as rose is making her final journey to go find her daughter i think at that point she's kind of hip to the fact that there's a person that looks exactly like her daughter in the silent hill other world that's alessa so this is after uh she met with dahlia and dahlia's like that's my daughter and then she figures out oh that must be her daughter that she's talking about yeah and in that way it's a lot like the original game where they kind of tease that there's some kind of strange like dual spirit thing happening with the protagonist's daughter and alessa who seems to play an important role in this other world Mm -hmm. so then you know she kind of goes through this weird little trial that is also like not super well explained where she's like okay you have to (laughs) you have to do a maze and you have to do challenges like the only explanation i can come up with is like it's a video game movie (laughs) you know yeah uh so she does that and she gets to alessa and then yeah there is kind of like a big exposition dump with the right, really bright white light, and you're just like, oh god, my eyes. <laughs> yeah, seeing that in the theater was really brutal. Uh, <laughs> but so the the exposition dumb part is basically where they give you all of the backstory on Alessa that the original game presented in a very subtle way. Um, yeah, that like she was this outcast in this town, and basically in in the movie you know she's like killed by the people of the town because they're sort of like religious zealots um and in the game it's pretty different but Mm, yes it was completely different (laughs) (laughs) it was completely different but i sort of felt like that specific plot aspect in the movie i didn't hate it like i was like okay kind of like you said earlier if you're trying to adapt this and make this work for people without getting into the cult stuff that works but it's a little easier to swallow yeah i do think it's weird because they sort of use that little five minute scene to justify like a bunch of weird violence against the cult members and that makes sense on paper but i feel like watching the movie it doesn't land um and i guess specifically there's a couple scenes of like really weird like violence against like women characters that feels really jarring and out of place uh the, and i was like barbed wire well uh, yeah, so yes that's the big one but even like earlier there's like one of the younger like women like members of the congregation just gets her skin ripped off oh yeah anna yeah and like yeah. it seems like i her- still i still i still haven't watched that scene I refuse to look at it. It's really weird and gross. And like, it seems like her only crime is that she's like kind of dumb. And so it's really weird that she gets all of her skin ripped off. Well, she did throw the rocks at Dahlia. Oh, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) But once again, she's she's being antagonistic to Dahlia. So (laughs) I guess she had to go. (laughs) Moral of the story. Don't mess with Dahlia. I think what bothered me the most was them deciding to take the character of Dahlia from the games, this horrible woman, and make her this sympathetic, like, a victim of this 
religious group, uh, I think they're called the Brethren or whatever, uh, made her into a good guy. And I, I never understood, like, why, why did you have to, why couldn't, why couldn't Dahlia be Christabella's, you know, character? Yes. It it was like an odd choice for me. And she's so different than her video game counterpart. It's like, why didn't you just give her a different name? You gave, you gave, uh, uh, Cheryl, a different name. <laughs> yeah. Call her Sharon. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a weird choice to me because it feels like they did very distinctly. It feels like they took Dahlia's character and just split her in two. Because yeah. in the game, there's like the sort of mysterious, weird Dahlia who you're not sure if she's on your side or not. And then there's like straight up Dahlia cult leader worships the devil is bad <laughs> and like yeah. it seems like for the movie they were like uh we can't deal with the duality of this let's just split her in two and make her two different characters <laughs> i'm wondering if like they made her a good guy because they had that whole you know through line of 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 um got uh mother's god in the eyes of the child and it'd be it wouldn't fit if dahlia was a horrible piece of shit to her daughter yeah I think that's a good observation and also just the general like trying to make the cult bad so you're just like yeah fuck them but once again it's all so sudden and abrupt because Dolly is still creepy like it's not like you see her and you're like oh yes a, a protagonist she well like she comes off as a broken individual like she's right. stuck there with them uh, mainly because she I mean, Alessa still loves her, but it was through her being such a doormat and letting her sister convince her that this child she had out of wedlock is a sin and needs to be purged. Right. She's still guilty. I mean, she did try to go to the police, but it was way too late. I think in one of the earlier versions of the movie, it was more apparent that she was tricked. She thought that they were going to just, I don't know, yell at her or something. I don't don't know. But it's... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, where did you think they were going, Dolly? You were going to the ceremonial room where you knew they burned people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah. uh, come on. Come on, man. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it feels very much like it's a little bit of bad writing where they're just like, okay, we just need to, to make everything this straight shot to the cult is bad. You hate the cult. Um, so that, like you referenced earlier, there's a big sort of final scene where... Alessa comes out of the ground at the church and starts attacking all the, the members of the congregation with barbed wire and killing them. And, and really brutally killing Christabella. Yeah, so that's yeah. another weird jarring. Like, I, I don't want to, you know, using the term inappropriate is loaded, so I'm going to try and avoid it. It just feels fucking jarring because she, like, sends barbed wire, like, up her skirt and, like, uh-huh. rips her in half. Don't forget the little uh, a little Alessa is dancing in the rain of blood yeah. coming oh. down. Jesus Christ, I did forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really weird and jarring and gross. And it's like, oh, wait, now I don't know how to feel about any of this. You know, like, it just feels like they were trying so hard to make like the cult evil and to make that whole scene feel like cathartic almost that they just went too far 
Do you think it would have been better if we had more time to process their crimes throughout the movie? Like there was more hints of the abuse and torture they put Alessa through where you'd be like more on her side of getting revenge instead of just dumping it in that last like like five ten minutes before it actually happens <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i knowing what they put her through i'm like fine whatever they deserved it <laughs> but like you said it's kind of jarring like five minutes after learning what they did to her they're dead it's like oh okay Walk yeah way to go <laughs> yeah like they definitely could have toned down the really gross stuff that we mentioned earlier but also a hundred percent i think that if if the movie was really supposed to be moving towards this climax of everyone in the cult getting killed and it's supposed to be important to the plot, it should have been more important to the plot. It kind of feels like for the first half or even like for 60% of the movie, maybe they're really just doing silent Hill. And then for the last 30 to 40%, they're kind of like, okay, let's just do a movie, you know? (laughs) And I think that's where, the stylistic choice of just making it be a big budget movie in the style of the ring kind of doesn't do the movie any favors. I'm wondering, like, I mean, they kind of hinted at it with officer Gucci and then, um, the, the nun from the orphanage, not wanting to talk about what happened 30 years ago and the atrocities that occurred. But Again, it was still was kind of a little too late. You're like, okay, well, we know they're bad. And then we see it and like, oh, you don't have that time to process it. Yeah. You know what this little girl went through. I mean, she got molested in a bathroom after being uh, taunted and tormented by her her classmates. It was clear that the, the adults at the school were going to do nothing about it. Very realistic. Then her mom's convinced that she's like this sin incarnate because she was born out of wedlock and her mother would not name the father. And then she's burned alive for just for existing, for being a little girl. Yeah. I mean, it's horrible. And, and you, you kind of like, yeah, go get him, girl. Go, you go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's a definitely a presentation thing. Sometimes when you do an adaptation, you take a story and you decide to color in the margins. Like you start to say, oh, I noticed this detail in this detail. What if we wrote it so that those things were connected and we fleshed it out more? Um, and that's actually a really difficult thing to do in an adaptation because, yeah, sometimes if you, if you do it right, it makes the whole thing feel really amazing, right? Like it adds depth, it adds character, et cetera, et cetera. But if you do it wrong... It just falls flat and sometimes is very weird. And I think that's a little bit of a problem in this movie, and it's a big problem in, you know, some of the other stuff we talk about in this episode, you know? Like <laughs> yeah. you can start to send some really weird messages. And I feel once again, I feel like that's like some of the stuff in this movie I don't like is sort of like that. Like I do feel like they picked up on okay, there's some sexual imagery or there's some like sexualized imagery in the Silent Hill series. So we should put some of that in the movie and we should do some of that in the movie. And yeah, some of that stuff is just kind of weird, you know? Are you referring mainly to the using the nurses from Silent Hill 2 or the whole little um, subplot of Alessa being uh, molested by the janitor? Honestly, either or. Like, I think both both uh, points in the movie kind of hit the same way, where it's like, 
okay, I see that you're just picking this up because you know it's a part of the larger series, but I don't mm-hmm. I don't know if it's like doing anything or if it's in good taste or whatever. Yeah, there, the scene with the nurses is just kind of like goofy, I think. They also made um, Pyramid Head sexy too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because he, he's shirtless and then he has an apron and then you could see his butt. Oh, yeah. 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 Big sexy pyramid head for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's that same thing where it's like, okay, I see what you're doing, but I don't know if that was the call, you know? Yeah. yeah. But I, I do think ultimately, like, like we've been kind of saying, I do think this movie gets a lot right about Silent Hill. And considering that it came out in 2006, feels like very miraculous that there's so much of it that actually kind of nails the series you know i like how when you when you rewatch it there's there's a lot of things that you'll notice like i don't think i no i I did think i noticed her outfit changing colors while i was watching it but it was so subtle it was like subtle details like that where a lot of people end up picking up in a rewatch really cool it's like oh wow yeah her outfit really did go from brown to blue to gray to like this blood red and yeah you never notice it during the movie so it's stuff like that like wow their wardrobe budget (laughs) (laughs) must have been must have been pretty high um yeah well even just like some of the shots uh there's like this thing they do whenever there's like a sort of important creature in a scene where usually at the end of the encounter, they'll do like a wide shot of the creature and show you the whole room. And every Mm -hmm. time it's so cool. They're like the coolest shots in the whole movie. They're really dark and moody in the same way that the game is inspired by things like David Lynch and like, you know, or like Francis Bacon, like you can kind of see that in the movie and it's really, really cool. So, I did last night. I actually back to back watched both Silent Hill movies, mm-hmm. uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about the second Silent Hill movie, which came out in 2012. It's called Silent Hill Revelation, because yep. Silent Hill Revelation is like if none of the cool stuff from the first movie and none of the stuff that worked was in the movie, <laughs> like. It's such a bizarre jump from the first movie to the second movie, in my opinion. Yeah, it is It is a bizarre jump. And what's worse also is, like, it also had half the budget. Mm. And it shows. Yeah. Like, a lot. Yeah, so Silent Hill Revelation, I think the easy description is twofold. Number one, it's a extremely loose adaptation of Silent Hill 3. And number two, it's sort of like if you made a Silent Hill movie that was done in the style of like a cheap teen drama TV show. A CW show? Yes. It's like (laughs) extremely CW. And so like the first thing you notice when you turn it on is like, the shots are not like dark and expressive and eye-catching like they are in the first movie. Um, you know, the the way that things are framed is no longer interesting to look at. It's like a very flat-looking movie, which is ironic because it was shot in 3D. <laughs> and yes, I actually saw this movie in the theater in 3D. <laughs> 
and uh, it didn't make it any better, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, did you also notice that they actually reused shots from the first movie, too? No, I didn't notice that. Yeah, they did. Like the, <laughs> you know, over, the overshot, you know where um, Rose drives to Silent Hill, that like mountain shot that's in the movie, the whole um, siren on the church was taken from the first movie. Wow. I think there was another shot and I can't remember what it was. But yeah, they reused shots as well. <laughs> Man, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, it's just like there's so many things you could point to as like, oh, they really like fucked this up. You know, relative to the first movie. Yeah, they retconned stuff too. Like they made it where the fire wasn't really an accident. It was something done on purpose by Alessa and it's like mm- no. Well, yeah. <laughs> they made it so they they didn't want to actually kill Alessa. They wanted to bring their god forth. And it's like, that's not... You can't mesh the two together. It doesn't work. <laughs> I think yeah. similar to the first movie, where the first 15 minutes are kind of weird and maybe not great, the first 15 minutes of Silent Hill Revelation are fucking baffling because like even some of the expository scenes and like weird edits they put in are so bizarre so like they put in this weird scene where like rose appears to her husband in like a mirror and like that's how uh sharon like got back into the real world from silent hill and it's like such a weird scene like there's just something supposed to she was supposed to be in the movie a little bit more, but her scenes were cut for some reason. Like, um, uh, Sharon or um, Heather was supposed to see Rose at like a different point in Silent Hill, like have like visions of her too. Like she's still trapped there. Yeah. Um, but I don't know why they cut him out because we saw the photos of of it. Yeah, but yeah, that whole scene about Sharon's return was odd. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't really makes sense okay (laughs) yeah it's super weird it's like they just wanted to get from the first movie to silent hill 3 and so they're like well we'll just write in this scene um which it's kind of funny because like i've done a little bit of sound work on film sets and i have i have seen this happen in real time but it still just like blows my mind to think that people actually do this but like I worked on this one movie where they were like, they realized as they were shooting that there was like no connection between one scene and the next scene. And so like the director literally just came up to the lead actor and was like, could you ad lib something that explains why the next scene happens? I, and what? <laughs> yeah, no, this really happened. I'm just, I'm just the sound guy. So I'm just sitting there like, wow, what the hell is going on? But, uh, it was just so funny because like seeing that happen now when I watch movies like this, I'm like, man, this has that same kind of energy <laughs> where they're like, yeah. you know, we never really wrote something to get us from the first movie to the second movie. Let's just put in this scene here. This will be fine. Yeah, it was a little, it was a little awkward. I, I, I always wondered why they made the decision to adapt Hill 3. Why didn't they just do a different story? Like, yeah. Why did you have to bring back Sharon and all that? Just do your own little story in Silent Hill. <laughs> it would have been so much easier. I mean, they tried to shoehorn in three different sequels <laughs> yeah. at the end of the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Well, and, you know, I'm not going to 
I don't think it's worth going too far into the plot because it is loosely just Silent Hill 3. So if you know the plot of Silent Hill 3, you kind of know where it's going. But I do want to talk about some of the baffling decisions they made. Like, uh, a big one is that they kind of rewrote the characters. So Vincent, who in the game is another creepy inscrutable Cheshire cat kind of character. You can't figure out his motivations. You don't know what he wants. Now is like a love interest. Yeah. He's a teenage heartthrob played by Kit Harrington. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, Claudia is his mom. Yeah. He's so he's also the son of the cult. Uh, he's sent to the real world to get like Heather to come into the Silent Hill other world and so they can use her for their nefarious purposes. Don't forget the way he got to the real world was pretty hilarious. Oh yeah, he gets like <laughs> carved they up. Have, they have to carve the, the halo of the sun into his skin yeah. and the reveal that he had to do that makes me laugh every time. <gasps> Look at me! <laughs> he lifts up his shirt it's, it's supposed to be dramatic and it's yeah oh my god well it's also like there's so many moments like that movie because the editing is exactly like a cw show so yeah he like screams and there's a flash of white light and he's just getting carved up uh it's so goofy it is so fucking goofy and what else was kind of weird is they made it so they were worshiping vatiel Mm-hmm. For some reason, like there's a big ass statue of him at the end, and Sean Bean is is handcuffed to it, and it's just like, what? <laughs> is that the god they're trying to bring forth? Is is Valtiel? Okay. Yeah. Why? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't know what's going on here. And yeah. Yeah, it was a little. And it's, what what's really odd to me is they got like Carrie Ann Moss. <laughs> And Malcolm McDowell to be in this movie. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, what? So they have the two wolves from uh, Silent Hill 3, which is Claudia Wolf, who's the head of the cult, and then, uh, yeah, like her father, Leonard. Mm hmm. The uh, Yeah. And they're played by Carrie Ann Moss and Malcolm McDowell, who are both, like, really good actors, and, like, even, like, Carrie Ann Moss's delivery sounds a lot like the actress from the game. Donna Brooke? Yeah. And it's like it's like a weirdly good piece of casting, but then like this movie is just horrible and it's like, why are they here? How did they get here? Something you said earlier actually stuck with me too, because another thing I find baffling is that there are tons of references to the game. Like you said, they you know, Valtiel is in there even though he's used wrong. Um, the P.I. Douglas is in there. He dies right away. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> but nothing is strung together in a way that makes sense. Nothing is put together in a way that even really calls back to the game. It's like, once again, to use a phrase used earlier, it's almost like they're just playing Mad Libs. Where they're just like, well, okay, we have this thing and this thing and this thing. Let's just chuck it all in and... We'll kind of see what happens. The references were fun, but there was parts where I was like, why is this in this movie? Like the the, the part with the mannequin spider monster thing. Okay. And the two, the, yeah. the two girls who got trapped in some... Why? Yeah. Why, why are they there? <laughs> no, I agree. I think it gets to a big weakness in this movie, which is that 
they like to make little references to the game, but they didn't try and capture the vibe of the game at all. So like in the first movie, it's almost the opposite where like they were so focused on like recreating Silent Hill and, you know, putting in things from the game and giving it the same feeling as the game that sometimes the plot is a little thin. In this one, it's like they're so focused on like just doing these Easter eggs that they don't even bother to actually go back to the games and pull anything from them. So, yeah, there's creatures in this that, first of all, the design is horrendous. And second of all, it's like, what is this and why is this here? So I assume the mannequin thing was supposed to be a reference to the mannequin scare in the third game. Sure. I guess. And I mean, there was other stuff that were, were a little bit on the nose. Like she did go to Jackson, but she went with Vincent and they stayed in room 106. And there was a red shoe that was kind yeah. of like the red shoe you get in the game. And I personally, I really liked the book that they had. And there was little scribbles in it that were the concept art from like Silent Hill Origins and Silent Hill 1. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's mm. it's so so bizarre. Cause yeah, like okay. So something you referenced earlier, just for people who haven't seen this movie, there's basically a scene where she's in the mall, just like the beginning of the game, and the movie even starts the same way as the game, where she's at the lakeside amusement park, and they go back there later. But mm-hmm. uh, she's in the mall for like a good chunk of the beginning of the movie, and she goes into the back room of somewhere, and she's confronted by this huge monster that's like a spider made of mannequins and it's like this whole bizarre scene where you see like a girl get turned into a mannequin in like this weird sacrificial way and then the creature like scrambles around and like eats another girl it's weird and it makes no sense but it's also really ugly like it's this really cheap shitty looking cg and like the only reason it feels like it's in the movie is so that they could do a 3D thing where it shoves one of the heads in your face. Yeah, yeah, it definitely felt like that. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is 3D scene. Yeah. The 3D in this movie is really problematic because it makes them do a lot of really dumb shots that are only there so that a thing gets shoved in your face. Like... Oh, Pyramid Head's knife, or... Uh, Douglas's fingers getting chopped off. Or Sean Bean's character getting stabbed through the back, and the knife coming out at you. <laughs> it's so funny, because when, like, when you watch it not in 3D, these shots just look really fucking stupid, because they're like super weird and forced, and the perspective is all wacky, and it's like, why is this happening? Yeah, I totally forgot it was in 3D until Douglas's fingers flew at my face. <laughs> You know, another weird thing was, it's like, why did they even bother putting in Douglas's character? He's mm-hmm. in there for like two seconds. And then they bring in these other two cop characters who are oh, there yeah. and then they're dropped. Like, okay. Yeah. It's a really weird hodgepodge of a movie. Like, it's got stuff that's from the games. It's got stuff that's not from the games, but none of it makes any sense. It's all just thrown in there. Don't forget the accidental incest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Claudia is related to Christabella, who is the sister of Dahlia, who is the mother of Alessa. Right. And now they're kissing cousins. Yeah. It's like, why was that a part of it? What is going on in this movie? I think... 
another big thing, and it's maybe like the big thing that stuck with me the first time I watched this movie, was that the whole way that they portray the cult is like really bizarre. And it feels like one of those weird off-brand like sci-fi channel predator movies or like predator type movies where like everyone is just wearing like a really cheap shitty cloak and walking information and then eventually like the quote-unquote monsters show up and they're just like so ridiculous and unconvincing um yeah in this movie you get not only pyramid head but you also get kind of like ninja pyramid head uh (laughs) Are you talking about the Cenobite? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, I don't understand why that's there or what the purpose is. We had to have an epic fight scene. Yeah. Between the two. Yeah, it was really awkward. It's stupid looking. (laughs) Yeah. 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 This movie just feels like a bunch of different types of like poorly made TV shows and TV movies all stitched together and then painted over as Silent Hill. Don't forget the confrontation between Dark Alessa and Heather. Oh, that, yeah. uh, the big uh, the big hug, they just hugged it out. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was a disappointment. I was like, oh, they're gonna do battle. Oh, they're just gonna hug. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. she her makeup was horrible for for memory of Alessa. Like what what was with that look? She looked like a juggalo. She totally looks like a juggalo. <laughs> she doesn't look creepy at all. Like the original, like her skin was cracked and there was blood and oh. Yeah. She just has white makeup on and like some dark lipstick and rings around her eyes. It's like, oh, okay. Between that look and all the time spent in the back room of a mall, this movie does kind of have a like 2000s hot topic juggalo sort of vibe to it, you know? Yeah. Actually, didn't that spider scene, it happened after she got to Silent Hill. Oh, yeah. 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 The Oh, my God. The Trying to figure out the geography of this movie is confusing in a way that's like even more so than a normal Silent Hill experience. I mean, because there, there was a scene in the mall where she was in the back of the mall and there was a shift and she saw, I think, like a birthday cake and oh, yeah. like weird, weird, creepy things. But yeah, that, the mannequin scene was like, was it after? Honestly, I can't remember because there's so much of this movie. I was just like, what is going on? You know, like it kind of all blends together for me. Also, I thought Alessa took care of the cultists in the first movie. Oh, yeah. Where were these folks in the first movie? <laughs> yeah. Apparently, Christabella was the zealot, but it didn't doesn't seem like that in this movie. These no. people are pretty... Uh, Pretty awful too. Yeah, it's very odd. Like they should not have combined the two. It just does not work. You can't make it both. I mean, the movie was its own universe, you know, mm-hmm. and the game it's its own universe. You couldn't really mix them up because they're too different. And the movie, it tried. It gets. It gets a you tried star, but yeah. it didn't. It wasn't successful in in meshing the two together. Unfortunately. We did get some cool scenes. Uh, there was some stuff I did like about the movie. I really laughed when the Pop-Tart 
scared everybody. Oh, and yeah. And I really liked, I did like the carousel scene when it was, you know, the fire went up and they were talking, even though it was kind of cheesy that they hugged it out. I thought, oh, wow, that really is very much like Silent Hill 3 with the carousel going down into the ground and getting into the, the church. I thought that was really cool. The Leonard bit was weird and him turning into his monstrous form he looked really goofy and the seal the seal actually being able to do something was weird oh yeah <laughs> in the game it was just like yeah that does nothing <laughs> but yeah. in the movie it had a real big thing it got it got shared out of Silent Hill Rose stole it a piece of it from Leonard to get Sharon out and yeah that was that was odd yeah it's just a really strange movie I think that, yeah, it's very incoherent, like you said, because it tries to mesh the two timelines together and they just are not meant to be connected in that way. You know, it's funny, my feelings on this movie have definitely changed since I first, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, it's fine. You know, I really liked all the the references to Silent Hill 3, like I appreciated that. But over the years, the more I watched it, the more I kind of disliked it, like, mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense. Like with the Silent Hill one movie, like at first I was so disappointed that it wasn't the adaptation. I kind of hyped myself into believing it was going to be. But after yeah. the more rewatches, I I really appreciated it for what it actually was, and, and and it is a good movie in my opinion. While Revelation, it just gets worse every time I rewatch it. It's like, oh man, this is actually pretty bad. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, I think with this movie. I just liked it immediately, but watching it again, I can see why. I think initially I just didn't know why. I was like, this movie's just dumb. But watching it again, especially back to back between the two, uh, I think it's really just that they sort of took everything that worked in the first movie and either did the opposite or tried to do the same but did it poorly. Or, Or couldn't do it because they didn't have the budget. Yes. And that's the other thing is that this movie is just kind of cheap looking and not very well made in a way that like, it doesn't give you any visuals to hang on to. It doesn't really give you any moments where you're like, oh, that's really cool. And I think that's what sold for me. That's what sold the first movie. Yeah. Like even, even when like she walks into town, you could totally see the CG She's CG'd in with the fog. With the original movie, there's some, there are of course some sections where you can see they, they filled it out with yeah. um, CG fog. But they actually had a fog machine there and sets. And this looked like she was walking on a green screen for a lot yeah. of it. Um, I think the reason why I liked the carousel so much is it was a practical effect. Like you could see, you saw the... Um, pictures of the set and the carousel and putting the fire up like the pyrotechnics and stuff now i'm thinking about it it was still kind of goofy that it was pyramid head like turning it in chains yeah yeah like why was pyramid in the head in this movie oh apparently he's a alessa's guardian what why (laughs) yeah i i feel like it's once again it kind of goes back to In video game adaptations, what really doesn't work is just sticking stuff in, either because you think fans will like it or because someone involved with the production was like, we have to do this. You know, that's basically what killed like the Street Fighter movie, among other things, because they were just like, 
we need to have every character that's available in Street Fighter 2 EX Turbo World Tournament Fighter Edition in the movie. And so suddenly they're taking a script that was written for three or four characters and having to have like eight or nine characters, you know? Yeah, lots, and, lots of little cameos. It's yeah. Just... <laughs> so it's like with this one, yeah, it's like, no, I mean, the scene would work fine if Pyramid Head wasn't there turning it. We don't always need yeah. a Pyramid Head. <laughs> You know what was also weird to me was how they marketed this movie. Okay. Like, there was a lot of, you know, oh, 3D, you know, adventure type thing. That's fine. But I remember when they were releasing little, like, there was this one commercial with the nurses and Vincent strapped to a table and they made it super sexual, like, mm. moaning sounds and stuff. I'm like, why are you marketing this movie this way? It's not, it's not that. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> it's just it's very cw it's those cw vibes it's like we've got a bunch of teens and they're angsty they're horny. And, and horny yeah some weird decisions were made uh, uh recently I, don't know, I guess maybe like th maybe it was three years ago mj bassett she she did an interview with dread central central and she basically was like yeah I, i'm not really i would have done things a lot differently now there was a lot of regret, regrets with this with this particular movie, um, and I feel so bad because she, she was a fan, but uh, yeah, basically the studio is kind of working against her, and she had to do some stuff to to get it made. But it's a shame that it just came out it, kind of goofy. You know, it could have been better. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, man, it's not even like a unique story in that way because like. One thing that I still always find amazing is that um, the director, Karen Kusama, who's like really amazing director, has done like great horror movies and stuff. Um, her first big feature was like the Eon Flux adaptation. Yes. <laughs> and like that, I guess the story of that movie was her just fighting the studio over and over and over and being like a young, like new director and a woman just not getting her way, constantly getting pushed back. And it kind of like ruined her career for a while because it was like, oh, you made that movie. We don't want to hire you. But she's actually a great director and went on to do great things. But yeah, it just feels like a lot of these productions, they're just they're just like the studio is looking at it as a cash cow because it's like, okay, we have a built in audience. We know people are going to come mm -hmm. see it or at least this many people are going to come see it. So whatever we don't really give a shit you know we're not going to respect the director or the people working out creatively and it's super sad um but it's also kind of what makes the really good ones feel special you know because like with the first Silent Hill movie it's like okay even given my problems with it, it's amazing that they managed to make this Silent Hill movie you know yeah yeah yeah. Definitely makes me more appreciative of of what they were able to accomplish in the first one, and a, more excited about um, Christoph Gans wanting to come back to do another movie. Oh um, yeah, it's, there's there's that rumor going around right now. Yeah, that would be cool. I would actually probably feel more just like unreservedly excited about that than if there was a new game announced. Cause if there's a new game announced, my brain always goes to like worst case scenario, but I was like, Oh, another movie with him. That would be cool. Where would you rank out of like all the movie adaptations? Where would you put the, the Silent Hill series? Do you still think they're the best due to most in part with the first movie 
Or do you rank them lower now that we've gotten, like, Detective Pikachu and Sonic? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think in terms of Western productions, like, the first Silent Hill movie is still pr- relatively high. Uh, I will say, I think that there's a lot of Japanese video game adaptations that are better um, there's very few of them that are amazing in the way that like the Fatal Frame movie is incredible. Like I love that movie. Um, but I think overall, like there's actually a lot of just like decent watchable J horror movies that are based on video games, but they're just like not amazing. I think with Western productions, it's kind of all or nothing. Like it's either a really good movie or it's just like totally fucking horrible. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of think that the first Silent movie still really stands out for being like, oh yeah, this is good. Like this is a good movie. I would I would still rank it pretty high. The second one is way down there for me. Like it's down there with like I don't know the third Resident Evil movie or like I don't know those really <laughs> yeah. bad two thousands era movies. You know. Yeah, it is. It is a fun watch. So, like, if you haven't seen it, you know, give it give it a watch. You might laugh. I I laughed a lot. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> if you're familiar with the series, yeah, there is some baffling stuff that's just like, what? I still, I think my favorite line in the movie, besides "fuck Facebook," is 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 him trying to butter Heather up and going, "I think you're you're goofy fun inside, Heather." Oh <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you saying vincent shut up (laughs) and i like that she says it back to him and it's it doesn't make the line any better it just makes it worse (laughs) she's like goofy fun (laughs) yeah there's some weird the weird lines in the movie (laughs) honestly i feel like the most telling thing about this movie is that i watched it last night and I have a hard time remembering stuff from it because it feels like it went on for four hours. Did you watch it by yourself? I watched it by myself. <laughs> you didn't want to subject her to. <laughs> well, I actually, I actually told Monica, I was like, "You don't have to watch this with me." Like we, we had both seen it. We watched it together in the theater, so like mm-hmm. she knew how bad it was, and I was like, "You don't have to watch this with me." She was like, "No, I want to, just because I think it'll be funny." But then. She went to sleep and I had to work today. So I was like, okay, I have to watch it last night. So yeah, it was just me alone with my thoughts watching this terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> I, yes. I don't recommend that. Did you, do you actually own it or did you rent it? <laughs> no, I, I rented it for three ninety nine. Yeah. The first one I owned and I watched my old DVD copy of, but, uh, I did not ever end up. Oh, did, you didn't get the, um, the re-release, the recent re-release. No, I didn't know about that. Yeah, uh, Shout Factory put out a, a collector's edition of the first movie where they improved the, the picture quality, um, added some extra like extra features. I think there's like interviews and uh, there was also a poster too. Yeah. Oh, nice. It came out uh, last last year, I believe. Dude. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll definitely check that out. My The DVD copy I watched looks like pretty creaky now, so I would definitely like to have a Blu-ray of it. I mean, they did put out a Blu-ray edition uh, shortly after the DVD, but this this new version is definitely higher quality. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Adaptations are hard. I think if there's any takeaway from this episode, 
it's that what works in one medium doesn't always work in another. And that's something that creators have been trying to figure out for a very, very long time. I think when we talk about Hollywood, when we talk about Western markets, people were really trying to drag video games into the blockbuster arena. That's kind of an antiquated idea now because video games are mainstream blockbusters, but for a long time that just wasn't the case. So the people who are making these movies, and people like Paul W.S. Anderson, really were doing their part to try and sell video games as big blockbuster experiences. And I think that's where a lot of the growing pains in video game adaptations actually came from. You know, it's why we got so many weird things and false starts here and there. Now, when we look over to East Asian cinema, you see an ecosystem that was a lot more primed to do something like this. If we're looking specifically at Japan, for example, you're looking at a media economy in which multimedia franchises are the norm. You know, if an anime is popular, there's going to be a video game of it. There's also going to be a live-action movie. And if it's not based on a manga, there's going to be a manga. And you could move any of those words around in any order, and it would totally make sense, you know? A lot of these Japanese media properties seem to be based mostly on adaptation. So when you look at film adaptations in Japan, there's a lot more of them, and they are of a higher quality. Now, I'm not going to jump out of a limb here and say that they're all great, because they're really not. Once again, Zero Brightness choosing to cover Fatal Frame is very misleading. Fatal Frame is an outstanding film, but there are a lot more just like serviceable, pretty good video game adaptations in Japan, even in the horror genre. Now, without even getting too specific, I can kind of describe them to you. You know, if you're an anime fan, you've probably at some point watched a live-action adaptation of your favorite anime. And, you know, most of them are just fine. As a baseline, they're all just fine. I know I've watched a bunch of these, you know, movies based on Rurouni Kenshin and Beck, among others. None of them are mind-blowing. They're just, like, pretty good, and they're based off a thing you really like, so they're enjoyable. I would describe a lot of these movies as, like, aggressively okay. I think the best example of this is uh, the Detroit Metal City live-action movie. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but there's a manga that was later turned into an anime called Detroit Metal City. And uh, it is honestly one of the most bonkers, bizarre, totally off-the-wall pieces of, you know, fiction, comedy ever made. And somehow they managed to make a live-action adaptation of this that's just like, it's fine. It's not even that weird or crazy. It's just like, oh yeah, it's good. And that's kind of how I look at a lot of these Japanese adaptations. You know, there are movies based on Siren, for example, and Twilight Syndrome that both involve some pretty big directors and are like, you know, productions with a decent budget that are both just like, they're okay, you know? If I was going to describe the style of all of these, I think the best way I could do it is it's kind of like a really big budget TV movie. You know, it's got this kind of glossy, nice cinematography. 
it's got very professional editing. The acting is, you know, exactly what you'd expect. It doesn't blow your mind, but it doesn't disappoint either. Everything just hits that middle of the road feel, but it's also so professional and well done that you're not just like instantly slapped in the face by amateurism, right? Nobody does anything like throw a punch the way they do in Mortal Kombat or deliver a line the way anybody does in Street Fighter. It's like they're designed not to offend anybody and to just keep the viewer watching, which isn't a bad thing, but it's also not an amazing thing either. There's also a surprising amount of these movies, and some of them based on really quite obscure games. For example, there's a Corpse Party movie. If you didn't know that, now you know that. And going back to the very beginning of Survival Horror, I sort of have to mention that the game that started it all, Sweet Home for the NES, is actually based off of a movie by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, one of the greats of Japanese cinema, and specifically horror cinema. That movie, even though it's not based off a video game, is heavily tied to video games. It's also just okay, which continues the theme here. So there's a lot of ties between video games and movies, but it doesn't seem to have produced that much more greatness than it has in the West, you know, because once again, adaptations are very, very hard. Now, it's always interesting to me to talk about J-horror, not just because I love it, but because regardless of where you look throughout East Asia, um, in the horror genre, J-horror has been just like massively influential. You know, different countries put their own spin on it and kind of suffuse the movies with their own culture, but ultimately there are a lot of references back to J-horror. And so for this next segment, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about a new TV show that's actually based on a franchise that has already had a J-horror style movie made of it, Detention. Now, like I said in the Detention episode, I actually think that that movie is really special. It manages to do a big budget, kind of middle of the road J-horror style film about the game Detention that doesn't lose the edge that the story had. You know, it is ultimately a very political story. It's about the horrors of fascism. And I think, to me, any adaptation of it really needs to point back towards that, which the movie does. And despite having some of that middle-of-the-road style, it doesn't lose that. We're now going to talk about the new Netflix TV show, Detention, which takes the franchise in some different and honestly just bizarre directions. This is a conversation I'm very excited to share with you guys because I think it gets at a lot of things that are very important to me and my returning guest, Monica Coleslaw, and it hits a lot of themes that have been brought up over and over on this show, but makes them maybe a little bit more explicit. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Now, before you enjoy this, you do need to know that this is like Spoiler City. Let me run down some of the things we're going to spoil. Number one, the show Detention. Although, caveat, the show Detention is structured in such a weird way that it kind of spoils itself and spoils the game. We talk about it a little bit in the beginning, but like, it's very weird and confusing. But yeah, I guess we're going to spoil that. We talk about the ending a lot. 
We also talk about the ending of the Netflix show, Sabrina, because it's pertinent, it's relevant to the conversation. I think those are the big ones. I guess at some point there might be some light spoilers for some other very shitty TV shows, but it's mostly Sabrina and Detention. So be warned if you are saving yourself for those shows, uh, we will spoil them. With that out of the way, enjoy. Okay, so we watched the new Detention Netflix show. Yeah. All of it. Uh, week by week for some reason. Did we? Yeah, remember it came out weekly? Oh yeah, that's right. Stupid. Yeah, I don't know why these streaming services are doing that. Yeah, that's not what I pay for. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, true. Um, but yeah, so the theme of this episode is adaptations. Uh, and this is like, honestly, one of the weirder adaptations of a video game or really anything that I've ever seen because it's like a sequel that also recontextualizes the original plot and story and so like there'll have already been a spoiler warning before this but also like I guess I just want to say again like this is kind of just like this show almost spoils itself it's like so weird in that way and it's also like a spoiler for you know the the original game that it's based on but this whole show honestly is like super super weird it was like a soap opera yeah like it starts out as uh just like a very soap opera-y kind of show and then eventually it just like sidelines into this weird other thing and it ends in a way that uh we'll talk about but it's like super horrible (laughs) uh but also uh strangely in line with a lot of the content that netflix has been doing lately like netflix's new thing seems to be take teenagers and put them in edgy situations yeah not even like i don't know if edgy is the right word it's just like, I don't know. It's kind of sick. Yeah, like sick, sick, like disgusting, not like yeah. sick. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. It's like disturbing. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so some background on this show, Detention. So the premise of this show is basically that there is a new... There's a storyline that's set in like around the turn of the millennium. I think it's like 99, 2000, right? And it's basically this young girl moves to a new town and starts at this school in Taiwan that seems to be run in like this very weird old fashioned kind of way. Like it's still the 50s and they still do like, you know, corporal punishment, like all that kind of shit. And she quickly realizes that the school has this sordid history and may be haunted Oh, but also she takes crazy pills every day. Oh, yeah. She's, yeah, she's crazy. Yeah. And they make a big deal about it, like our old drummer did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gotta, gotta take my one pill for Time day. to take my pill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, exactly. So she quickly kind of gets wrapped up in the fact that there's like a history to the school and it's haunted by the ghost of like you know another teenage girl from the past yeah 
it's it's weird though because like in the first two minutes of the show they basically like show you the ending of the original game and like the girl from the past is the girl from the game detention throughout the show they show you the plot of the original game but they also show you like a new plot it's honestly super weird and confusing yeah i guess that does make it seem a little bit worse now that i'm thinking about it (laughs) well i think it's just it's a weird choice to me right out the gate to be like Let's adapt something, but let's make the structure of it such that if someone knows the original thing that it's based on, they'll be like more confused when trying to follow what's going on. Because then that's basically what they did, right? Yeah, that's goofy. Also, uh, the whole time I was like, why is there only one ghost? Wasn't there just one ghost? Yeah, there's just one ghost. Why though? Because they kept flashing back to all the bad shit that happened there. You'd think there'd be more than one. Well, okay, so the pl- let's, I guess, just run through the plot of the original game quick. The plot of the original game is basically there's a girl who you're playing as who's caught in this school. It's kind of like a Silent Hill-esque other world, you know? Um, and as you play through the game, you quickly realize, or you know, I guess at the end of the game, you realize that she's a ghost trapped inside the school because she had this infatuation with one of her teachers. She was in love with her teacher and she basically got jealous because he wasn't in love with her and she thought that he was like maybe in a relationship with one of the other teachers. She found out that they have a banned book club, reported them all, and they all got rounded up by state police. Some of them died and some of them didn't die. So, like, the reason that there's only one ghost in the original thing is, like, you're playing as the ghost, you know? And you see other weird entities and stuff, so it actually kind of makes sense that it's like, oh, there actually are other entities and ghosts that, like, haunt this school, right? Um, The game got a really good movie adaptation that was previously covered on this show. Uh, It's pretty much just a one-to-one adaptation of the game, except in a little bit more of, like, a big-budget, like, East Asian horror movie style, but... The plot is more or less the same. Uh, and so it's kind of weird that with this show, they decide to like pick and choose what they adapt and what they change. And yeah. I think the weirdest thing they do is that they kind of decide to go back in and recontextualize some of the stuff that's sort of left unsaid in the original plot. And that's where the weird, problematic yeah, Netflix Netflix messaging comes into play. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like, it was great up until the ending. Like, it was, like, super dramatic, but it was also a little spooky. It had a good, like, you know, vibe. The parts that were scary were pretty scary. It was fine. And then it just goes, like careening off the fucking rails yeah like and like at a wall yeah for sure well yeah okay so let's talk about the early part then so the, the early part is essentially just the story about this girl who goes to this new school like you said it's very much in a it feels almost like a k-drama yeah. you know where it's like uh mixed with horror so it's kind of hokey you know, it's 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 a little corny. It feels like a soap opera, but 
it still has some good spooks and scares. Um, there's some really weird, gross scenes with the ghost that are cool. Like, a lady gets her, like, knees bent the wrong way. Oh, yeah. Ew, that was, like, that, um, part in Suspiria. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and it's got, you know, it's got what you want. Like, one of the characters is in a family that does, like, spiritual, uh, remedies and stuff. So, you get to see some, like, ghost hunting and some, like ritualistic stuff and they go to the temple and blah 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 it's just like all that stuff that you'd want out of a like a ghost story like this you know yeah and the kid from that family is like a nice little baby (laughs) and he's like trying to help the main girl yeah yeah but the school thinks he's a bad boy yeah oh yeah also those uh funny necklaces they wear yeah if you're like a bad kid they make you wear a necklace that says devil yeah that's fucked up yeah, it's it's it is fucked up. <laughs> but um and so in the first part, this girl is trying to like get acclimated to this new school and find her way. She has kind of a messed up home life, but they don't fully reveal like why at this part in the story. Yeah. Um and so she's trying to figure things out and so she meets this new teacher. And anyone who's familiar with the original game knows that he's kind of like a stand-in for the teacher that uh the main character of the game was like in love with you know yeah but he's different because he's kind of like smarmy and gross yeah yeah he's not at all charming no he has gross hair also yeah he's he's sinister though yeah like i felt right from the jump i was like oh like this dude is like sinister you know yeah um but so she she gets involved with him and she starts basically being like mentored by him to do writing uh and so she also allows herself to be possessed by a ghost to become a better writer honestly would (laughs) (laughs) um i would what you would not get possessed by a ghost to win a contest oh no yeah i would for sure yeah i guess it depends on what the prize is yeah i mean i would the ghost leaves later I mean, I wouldn't do it for like a Chili's gift card, but I would. I won't say it a live bug for uh, an incomplete Applebee's gift card. <laughs> why? What? Why did you do that? I don't know. Why not? <laughs> I didn't have any money. <laughs> I was in college. Sure. It was an Applebee's gift card um, that had like ten dollars on it, and I went to Blocky and I uh, bought a frozen margarita. Nice. Yeah, it was probably, like, the first step towards me becoming an alcoholic. I should have eaten food. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) Those, like, restaurants are weirdly expensive, though. Yeah. Like, you know it's shitty, so in your head you're like, oh, it's cheap. But then you actually go there and you look at the menu and you're like, oh. Yeah. Wow. Oh, this this quesadilla is, like, $18. (laughs) But it's also because, like, the portion size is for, like, six people. Like, six people could eat an Applebee's quesadilla. Sure. But I've never been to a Chili's because no one will take me. What? So I gave away my gift cards. It's all like. The and same. now I'll like literally never go to another restaurant ever again. Yeah. I mean, potentially. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, anyway. Yeah. So she gets possessed by a ghost to win a Chili's gift card is the yeah. point. Is. Awesome. Awesome. And so she starts working with his teacher and being mentored by him, but their relationship is, like, super inappropriate. Yeah, because he's like, oh, 
can I lean this close to you? Or like, do and you, you want to be, be alone in the date? library? Do you want? Yeah. He just can like I takes give you liquor? Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, you can be my date. Come with me, and I'll buy you drinks. Yeah. It's like that's when I was like, bitch, get out. Yeah, but it, it's okay. So I'm trying to kind of get through this so we can talk about the weird divergences here yeah. between like the the original and this adaptation. But so she's in this inappropriate relationship with him, and it's like bad. And then uh, he tries to like sexually assault her. Yeah. Uh, and but then the ghost prevents it from happening. Yes. Uh, the ghost who the girl now has like a tense relationship with because she's like, I actually don't want you to possess me. Actually, yeah. I changed my mind. I don't want that Chili's <laughs> gift card. Uh, and the ghost is like, while well, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. uh, you called me from my eternal rest. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, excuse me uh so she stops that from happening and then basically there's this whole subplot where the girl is accusing with the help of her parents is accusing the teacher of sexually assaulting her and grooming her and trying to get some form of justice which in the in the form of like a weird like tribunal almost court style thing but it just happens yeah, in the it's school just like the school board yeah versus her and her parents yeah and he's also the son of like the principal isn't he yes yeah so nothing's gonna happen it's just it's just like real life yeah and so okay the at this part of the story i was like okay this is an interesting take on this type of story because like i said okay in the original game like there's uh the main character develops uh like an infatuation with her teacher and it's all told in this kind of subtle and vague way so the player is supposed to fill in the details but the way that i interpreted it from the game was that there was actually nothing there at all like the teacher basically saw that she was kind of like a troubled youth and was trying to like mentor her actually and then she was just like obsessed with him yeah and so and like the the moral of that story that i took from it is basically just that like fascism is horrible because Mm -hmm. it makes all the stakes so high so just like a mixed up kid because that's all the main character is like she's not evil or bad she's just like a mixed up kid does something and ends up like sending people to jail and with people dying you know and that was how I interpreted it. And that's also the plot of the movie of the is like the same. And it also sucks that you can't watch the movie like anywhere because the movie's really good. Um, I mean, I have it. I guess if someone wants to like DM me. We could tell you where to find it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I would never distribute um, a material Not like illegal. that. Yeah, and it's against what the government wants. What's um, the thing? Piracy hurts everyone? Yeah, you wouldn't steal a car. You wouldn't download oh, yeah. a car. You know what? If I could, that'd oh, be Oh, yeah. Awesome. I would absolutely download a car. Um, i download like four cars just because. We'd have four PT cruisers. I'd just be giving them away. Like, hey, man, you <laughs> you know what? You want a PT? I like the look of you. You want a PT? <laughs> You'd look better in a PT cruiser. <laughs> I see you walking down the street. What if you were cruising? <laughs> Um, I do feel cool when I drive the PT Cruiser. It's a cool car. Just kidding. I'm just amazed that I can drive. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm doing it. 
what if this whole time you were just like lying you didn't pass a test you don't have a license you just sort of like going I've just rogue. been leaving every morning parking the car and hiding behind the dumpster for eight hours because I can't go in anywhere <laughs> oh my god the other day I got so mad that I have a license and I can't go to the Mall of America whenever I want oh yeah I was so pissed I like slam my phone on my desk. <laughs> Dumb. Cool. Sorry. <sighs> sorry. That's okay. Uh, anyways. <laughs> I really want to go to Doc Popcorn. Doc, uh, DP. Yeah. <laughs> I want a $9 bag of like salt. Sure. Anyway, what were you talking about? Um, This show. So knowing the context of the original, I thought okay, it's kind of interesting that they're going this route with the story, right? Because it is a modernization where like they're coloring in the details so that, okay, the teacher actually did something. It's bad. And they're, you know, in a realistic scenario, there would be some sort of, even if there wasn't like actual action taken, something like this would happen. Right. And it, it resolves in a very depressing and realistic way where, like you, like you said, nothing happens. Yeah. And she's basically just, like, depressed. And so she decides, like, fuck it. I'm just going to let the ghost possess me. Because the whole time the ghost's been like, don't you want revenge? And yeah. she's been like, no. And now she's like, yes, I want revenge. Um, she wants revenge. Oh, my God. Shut up. <laughs> Ew. Uh, I hate that band. I've always hated that band. That band sucks so bad. How dare you? Uh, I just thought it was funny. Um, But so then she's like, okay, fuck it. Ghost, you can take over my body and do whatever you want and just like get get me some revenge and we're cool. You know? Um, It's like when you let someone borrow your car and you're like, just fill up the tank. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Just PT better not come back with one scratch on it. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Then the show starts getting weird because basically the the girl, the living dead girl. Oh my god, you need to cool it. Uh, yeah, I will. Okay, so so the, the living girl who who's like in the modern age basically gets sent back to the fifties, and the ghost girl takes over the living girl's body and starts going around wreaking havoc because she has like ghost powers, right? Yeah. So. Ghost girl going around wreaking havoc. Living girl caught in the past starts reliving what happened to the main character of the game, who's the ghost in this adaptation. And that's where it gets really weird. Basically, what happens is they show the events of the the game but in a totally different light that's like not in the original game that they just made up for this show, which is that her relationship with the teacher was like romantic yeah and it's portrayed in a way that it's like it's okay yeah it's okay he loved her they garden together they just can't be together yeah and it's very weird and uncomfortable but it's still not like text yet it's all subtext right so like you're watching it and you're like okay, well, just like with the modern day story, they're going to show the turn where he's like bad, right? Like, you wait for it. You wait for it. It doesn't just not never come. Yeah. It, it does never come. But also like the ending of the show is like, 
their love was actually very pure and beautiful. Yeah, which is like fucking disgusting because he's yeah. a pervert. He's a he's a statutory rapist. Yeah, he like groomed her. Yeah, that's and like it's so fucked. <laughs> like, it was just like we were watching it and I was just like, what the fuck? Yeah. Are they sincerely doing this right now? <laughs> yeah. And then you're supposed it's like the ending is like very like feel good. And I was just like, what in the fuck, man? Yeah. So the ending is basically that the ghost stops killing everyone. Like, okay, first of all, the ghost should kill everybody. Like, everybody is bad. Yeah. You're on Team Ghost. And instead, the ghost is like, actually, I should just accept that things happened. And also that this teacher was the love of my life and the only person I ever truly loved. And it was a pure and beautiful love. And she decides not to kill everybody because she reads, like, a, a note he left her. Yeah. That's like, I love you, baby. <laughs> and yeah. it's like... And there's, like, what, like a 15-year age gap between them? Yeah, bro. He's, like, like... a teenager. Yeah. Ugh. It was super fucked. I hate that shit. It was super, super fucked. And it was actually fucked for a lot of reasons. Because, like, well, first of all, there's the, like glorifying, abusing power, grooming, and statutory rape, uh, which are all things that just, like, happen in that scenario, basically. Uh, And then there's just the whole, I think, taking the focus away from, like, the political message. Yeah. And not only just taking it away, but putting it on something really weird and gross. Because, like, the whole problem... So Red Candle Games are the people who wrote and created the original game, Detention, who also created um, Devotion, which is the game that you still can't get anywhere because it's been banned by China, right? Cool. (laughs) That's not cool. I mean, it's not cool that it's been banned, but I uh, love trying to get banned stuff. Oh, I have it. I also have that. (laughs) No, you don't. (laughs) I don't, actually. I don't. I would never. Thank you. I love the government. Uh, I'm I'm a good American citizen. Uh, Anyway, so they wrote and created both these games, and something that frustrates me is that I think both of their games have pretty heavy, like, socio-political messaging, but they also have been, like, trying to navigate, like, getting their shit unbanned, you know? So, like, Devotion got banned not for political reasons based on the game's story, but because there was, like, a tiny little asset left in the game that was, like, a dig at the president of China, you know? Oh my god. Yeah, it was just like a little thing that was like an insult to him, and so basically they got censored because of that. But I think it does have some sociopolitical messaging in it still, and Detention has a ton of it. I mean, Detention is a horror game all about, like, the horrors of living under fascism. Uh, And I think that the thing that this show does that I thought was really horrible besides all the like hashtag not all men vibes was like the fact that they just kind of took all that out. I mean, like it is an element, like they live under fascism, but the spotlight is just placed solely on this weird, like love story between a fully grown man and a teenage girl. And there's really no difference. I think like at the core of it there's no difference between like the ghost teacher and the modern day teacher in terms of like what they're trying to do yeah but there's like 
huge differences in how the show presents it. Yeah. Because, like, the modern-day teacher is a gnarly little gross man and like the the teacher from the flashback is like super hot yeah he's like a sexy nerd yeah he like wears like my glasses <laughs> yeah and they always put him in crazy soft light yeah and there's always just like angels singing whenever he walks into the room and it's like and it's like okay well you like love like a 15 year old yeah fuck you and yeah. like i feel like somebody's gonna be like well actually she's uh, 17 and the age of consent and, and it's like I do not care no it doesn't matter student teacher no I also yeah. watched a teacher and <laughs> that ended appropriately because she went to jail nice <laughs> I think I actually didn't finish it <laughs> <laughs> I think I read on Twitter that she went to jail I read the Wikipedia and she does go to jail nice uh, spoilers for a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> the worst show I've ever seen. Sure. Well, but see, that's the thing, though, is like, I feel like it's, I actually felt really upset when I watched the ending of the show for a lot of reasons, but it, it just felt like a huge betrayal of the game because in the game, they specifically have a scene where she like goes to the movies with her teacher and it's literally presented in like this effusive soft light and all this like crazy colors. And it's like, clearly showing you that it's like her fantasy yeah and like this show uses those same kind of tactics but in a just like sincere way like oh it's just like a normal drama show these two characters are in love and it's like bro no yeah oh no oh no uh okay another instance where a teacher-student relationship was like a major plot point and like continued for like way too long was Pretty Little Liars. Oh. One of the girls is like maybe like 16, 17 and she like falls in love with her English teacher and it's like this huge thing like for like most of the show but nobody's ever like um is Ezra actually like a pervert? Uh-huh. But like I don't know the whole like forbidden love thing between like teachers and students is like really gross to me yeah it's super gross because well we were talking about this because you did like google it and you're like oh like here's the age of consent in taiwan yeah <laughs> but like but it's, it's still never... like the power dynamic still exists yeah and it's still an abuse of power it's why like i mean a college professor still can't date their students and they'll get in huge trouble if they do yeah like because even though they're all adults there's a power dynamic there's an imbalance and like you are there to like teach them and they're paying to like receive your tutelage like if you want to have a relationship with that person it has to be outside of a professional context yeah and it's like obviously in high school it's even more pronounced because the these they're kids they're not of age and even once they are because like you can be 18 for like you know the last stretch of the year in high school like that's still your teacher. <laughs> like yeah. it's not like uh step step sibling stuff <laughs> where you're just two like unrelated people who just so happen to cross paths and fall in love. It's yeah, yeah. It's not like step sibling <laughs> porn where two quote unquote teenagers who are clearly thirty-eight <laughs> still live with their parents and have yeah. sex with each other. And like you go on vacation, there's only one hotel room for the both of you. Oh my god, how did this happen? Things happen. Oh my god. How could they do this? Mom and dad must have really screwed up the reservations. (laughs) 
Oh, it's so hot. I better sleep naked. <laughs> I have to jerk off before I go to sleep. It's the only way I can go to sleep. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's not like that. It's wrong. <laughs> Fuck. Well, okay. So here's here's the thing I want to talk to you about because you love to to state your qualifications in this way, but uh, you're you're a film expert. Ah, uh, true, true. Would you like to tell tell them why you're a film expert? Because I do have a film degree, a yes. degree in filmmaking. Perfect. So adaptations, like adaptations are really hard to do. And I was trying to think, like, can you think of other examples of like an adaptation where they totally like recontextualize the whole story like this? Good question. Like, I almost feel like it's kind of unprecedented for someone to like do an adaptation where you like completely yeah, change like, like the subtext of the story. People like you know, like change like the ending yeah. of something just so like a book and like a movie aren't exactly the same. Right. Which is fine. Yeah. But to like change the whole tone is It's like kind of insane. Like I know that with um like there's a whole film series based on the Jinji Ito comic Tomie and like those are generally pretty fucking bad movies and they kind of got like a reputation as like I can't like it's unbelievable that they took like a great artist and just made all his stuff so bad but like even those don't change the basic concept the basic concept is like there's a woman named Tomie who never dies and like she keeps coming back and she's like this paranormal force, you know? But I feel like even when like an adaptation is bad or like changes the ending, they still have like some amount of like respect towards the source material. Yeah. But I feel like this like really threw the source material like under the bus. Yes. I agree. And I think it's kind of nuts because once again, there's a game. The game is still readily available everywhere. You can buy it. I think you can get it on your phone. You can get it on your Switch. Like, easy to get this game. The, there's a movie that you can't get anywhere, which sucks. And so now there's a TV show, which is the most accessible thing they've done. I assume the most amount of people are probably going to look at it because it's on Netflix. And yeah. it sucks because, yeah, it just totally throws out like the context of the original. And I I totally agree with what you said. Like, I feel like even something, you know, there's a lot of adaptations that come out before something is done and have to tie everything up, you know? Yeah. Like, even those which piss off fans, like, they don't change, like, the whole subtext of the show or, like, completely, like, reverse the whole story. Like, that's kind of how people feel about, I guess, Game of Thrones, even though I don't really know anything about that. And I know that's like some people were annoyed with the ending of um, Miss Peregrine. Oh, yeah. Everybody hated that movie, but that movie rocked. Yeah, that movie rocked. And they did something interesting with it where like they changed the endings that it would be like a one shot story instead of like a series with a bunch of books. Um, Scott Pilgrim did that, too. Like Scott Pilgrim, the movie came out, I think, either before the last book was out or like they just didn't want to get into it. So they changed it. So it's kind of just like a simple, clean 90 minute movie has a concrete ending, but like the characterization is still pretty spot on. Like the whole movie is like really well done. Like they didn't really change anything. They just like tidied it up. Yeah. But this one, it's like crazy, like how much they change and how they just change the thrust of like 
the whole story and to me like the messaging of the whole story well i think another thing i want to talk to you about because also you're an expert on this because you you seem to gravitate towards these like kind of like edgy edgy shows about teens oh my god what no i mean that's fair to say though right yeah yeah it's not like a diss i'm just saying uh i feel like there's kind of this weird new subgenre now that is like shows that are about teens or vaguely about like teens that are kind of edgy and broached dark and controversial subjects and nobody ever goes to class nobody goes to class (laughs) but i think that there's such a fine line between those shows being like really good and like really bad and fucked up yeah and like so an example of one that's good is euphoria oh yeah yeah like oh i see what you're saying now. you see what i'm saying yeah so like euphoria is incredible um and like deals with teenagers who like have addiction or who like are trying to deal with like finding themselves but are also caught up in like a wider culture that just wants them to be like one thing you know um but the one thing that sucks about euphoria though is that there's a lot of sex on it like graphic sex uh and drake produced it oh yeah that's not and drake is like a drake grosses me out drake also produced that movie spree uh yeah yeah but it's also like he might just be like giving people money he's definitely just giving people money and then he's like i'm a producer yeah for sure Whatever. yeah 100 but then on the other side of the spectrum you have stuff like detention or like you said pretty little liars right yeah um and one th- another thing we watched recently also big spoilers for the end of this oh yeah um, big honking spoilers okay but yeah i got a lot to say yeah okay so we watched another netflix show recently that has the same problem which is sabrina yeah the ending of sabrina what in the actual fuck it was so dumb first of all i think for as like progressive as sabrina tried to be and like mostly was it's fucking stupid that the whole last season is like a loose like hb lovecraft tribute yes Okay, so if you haven't not down. if you haven't watched it, you're not going to watch it. Basically, the last season of Sabrina, which is season four, all revolves around like the head, the former head of their coven of witches, who they kicked out in the previous season, goes off and basically becomes like H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, like he literally calls himself H.P. Lovecraft, uh, and it's it's really weird, but. He decides to devote himself to worshiping, what do they call it? The Eldritch Horrors? Yeah. Or Eldritch Terrors? I think one of those Eldritch two. Terrors. Yeah. And so he basically like summons creatures that all seem to be roughly like from H.P. Lovecraft stories. Yeah. Um, and that's the entire plot of the last season. Which is so dumb because prior to that all the monsters were fucking cool. Yeah. They have like all those like different witches and like they had that one witch that tried to steal the baby. They had like a lot of crazy family stuff. Yeah. People trying to kill their dads. Yeah. And it's it's weird because like you said I think Sabrina does a lot of like performative progressivism where it's like oh look we have like this kind of character we have this kind of character like people reference this thing or like people say this thing that you've read on the internet you know and like which is like i think it's like good for like young people to like see that and like see themselves on tv yeah agree but then it's also like 
they totally undid it in like the last episode well yeah so i agree with you it's good to see the representation then yeah like if the show at its core is not actually living the values it espouses then it sucks so the lovecraft thing is weird and then yeah okay so so sabrina dies Uh to save everyone yes because even though the front yard of her house has dirt that can bring someone back from the dead uh they can't heal a cut yeah. Even though her boyfriend can literally travel to space with a squid attached to, to his face. To get a box. She dies from a cut. Like she bleeds <laughs> out. Uh-huh. And like so she saves everyone and she dies. And she's like in the afterlife just on a bench reading a book. A very vague afterlife that really reminds Seems me boring. of like the good place. <laughs> yeah, who Hannah told me that it was like the good place. Oh yeah, because she like she was like, oh, it felt like they really ripped this off, which it absolutely yeah. was. Uh-huh. And then her boyfriend shows up, and they what was it that show where they're like we're Endgame, even though they're sixteen. I can't remember. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So also, I realize all this happens within a span of, the, of a year. Yeah. So they're the all kids. Show. Once again, they're all kids. Yeah. So, like, Sabrina's a child, Uh and she dies to save the world, and then her boyfriend meets her in the afterlife, and he's like, oh, I, like, walked into the sea of sorrows, and she's like, oh, I'm glad you're here, Nicholas, with me forever, and I'll never know anyone else, just you, since I was 17, 16. Yeah. And then we were like, what the fuck? Did he just say he fucking killed himself? And he did. Yeah. This motherfucker kills himself to be with his high school girlfriend. Yeah, it's insane. It's so bad. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, why did they make her like, you know, like a demon or something? So she's like pranking all these people <laughs> no, maybe not pranking pranking no she's sorry pranked. She i love pranks but like you know there's so you, much you pranked me this morning I, I did it was really funny god there was like so much other shit they should have done but then to have it like oh you know if you really love someone kill yourself who dies you should kill yourself and go meet them it's like what the fuck netflix yeah what the fuck i mean like they just what how many seasons of 13 reasons why are there like a million well, that's the other thing I was going to bring up. Like, what is going on at Netflix? It feels like their only tactic now is like, take, like, make teen show, make edgy. Yeah, but it's like not even, like, it's not even edgy. It's like bad writing. It's just bad writing. Like, yeah. even the, uh, what was the show we just, we watched like half an episode and there was like an insane rape scene and we just shut it off oh that was the grudge tv show yeah yeah didn't watch that what the fuck yeah yeah again those are like kids in like terrible situations and i think like netflix just keeps making the shit that like makes like teenagers seem like they don't have like any like agency almost yeah which is like gross and there's a lot of like giving up that i don't appreciate and yeah. like the way they market everything to be like really horny, but also like no one is smart. Yeah. Or like 13 Reasons Why. That's like base, like the whole premise of that book was like a girl kills herself and essentially like blames it on all these people. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it's just weird messaging, right? Like, I don't want it to seem like we're like the morality police here, but it's like fucked up to market something at teenagers and then just be like, oh, yeah, you should kill yourself. Or yeah. like, oh, oh you yeah. should walk into the ocean if someone you love dies. <laughs> yeah. Or even just like, oh, like, this is just a fact of life. Like, people get sexually assaulted. Like, oh, that's yeah. just like, it's like, I don't know. It's just like a weird it's a weird way to present something that's aimed at teenagers in my opinion and like you said it's like it's pretty much always bad writing like yeah the whole ending of sabrina is bad like they throw away every piece of like consistency and like internal logic that they've spent four seasons ingraining in the show just because they want sabrina to die and then they want like this weird rushed happy ending for her that's like yeah like a, it's super rushed it like feels out why, of nowhere why was the battle of the band scene like 10 minutes <laughs> yeah. long and then sabrina's like life wrap up was like three minutes here's a meta question why does this keep happening to us because remember at the end of sinking city where the final cutscene is literally 10 seconds long yeah like that's just is it us is <laughs> it we us thought it crashed. we thought the game crashed because the cutscene was so short but no, Netflix is really fucking up a lot lately. Because they also had that movie Cuties mm-hmm. that was like uh, like a real movie. But the way they like marketed it was like fucking toddlers and tiaras, but like horny. Yeah. And they were like little girls, like preteen girls. Yeah. And then everybody came after the director. Who was like, I didn't do this. And then Netflix was like, oh, we thought it was fine. It's like, why would you think that's fine? Why would you think that's fine? Yeah, I think it's, like I said earlier, I think it's such a fine line. Like, if you want to make something that's socially real and that shines a light on something that you're like, oh, this is a problem or this is something people should take seriously. It's such a fine line between doing that and just being exploitative and lurid and just saying like, Oh, like, look at this. And I feel like all the Netflix stuff just has that look at this kind of feel. Yeah. And like, I don't know, man, like detention. That shit was so fucked up to me because it's like, what if I just thought like, what if someone was in some kind of abusive relationship and watched this? It's literally just propaganda for yeah. like being like, isn't it amazing to be in an abusive relationship oh, you, with an older man? If he man? loves you, it's fine, actually. Yeah. It, yeah. like, really fucking blew my mind. That show fucking sucked. Yeah. The last episode sucked. Well, yeah, and it's so weird. Like, it goes from, like, this is a fine, serviceable TV show to, like, total dog shit. Yeah. By the end of it. I don't know. Somebody's got to save the teens. Well, I mean, like, okay, so we watched all four seasons of Sabrina, and at several points, we had to remind ourselves that this was, like, a show written for people quite younger than us yeah so we're aware okay and i think that's why at the ending when that guy killed himself we were like okay what the fuck yeah like that seems like a pretty foul message to be sending well i think okay see that's a good point i'm trying to get at i've been trying to get at why this stuff bothers me in in a way that's not just like moral outrage like you know like i'm old and angry like and i think it bothers me because all of these things have that common trait of like being kind of dumb and lightweight and clearly for an audience that's young 
but then also sending these fucked up messages. It would be like if in the middle of like fucking fairly odd parents, like the main character got into a relationship with his teacher. Yeah. You'd be like, what the fuck? Yeah, like, exactly. It's not just because it's like four kids or it's like, you know, aimed at it teens or a younger audience or whatever. It's that like the tone of the show can't well, yeah. handle the weight of the themes that it's trying to dissect. Like they kept shit light all throughout Sabrina. Mm-hmm. And then like for them to like end a main character's storyline with the suicide, like makes it feel like suicide is like also this light thing. Yeah. Which is like fucked up yeah because well because that's the other thing too is like i'm always trying to figure out how i feel about this stuff and how pieces of media ride this line right because like like i just read a book where somebody gets sexually assaulted in it and i was talking to you about it and it was like oh yeah like that happened in that book but it just didn't feel okay it wasn't like a scene in the book like it wasn't like lurid or exploitative it didn't feel like it was presented in a disrespectful way or it was like, you know, this thing that I found to be objectionable. And the whole book is like super dark and fucked up. And so it was just like, okay, well, I guess there are times when like anything like plot point could be acceptable. But then there's other times where it's like, oh, this is super like shitty and like fucked up. And like you said, it's like bad writing, you know? Yeah. Well, I think like in the book you read... Like, the character who had it happen to her had already had everything else taken from her by the person who did it. Yeah. I'm trying to find the name of it, too, because I always forget what it's called. The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. Ollie's reading through all of Grady Hendrix stuff right now. Yeah. And Paul Tremblay. After, like, years and years of me telling him to. Sorry. Jeez. What? (laughs) Sounds like you're mad. I'm not mad. Yeah. You sound really mad. I I did sound mad when I said <laughs> yeah, that. That's what I'm saying. But yeah, it's just like, it's such a fine line with all this stuff. But I think I can say, I mean, the reason that it bothers me so much, like seeing this kind of content in video games in general, but especially old video games, like I've talked about on the show a lot, is because the games are so dopey. They're so fucking stupid. People basically speak in like half sentences and the whole game is just kind of dorky. And then you're suddenly like, oh, actually, she was molested as a child. And it's like, no, yeah. fuck you, man. Like, don't do that. But then in other, there, and, you know, in a lot of times when it shows up in movies and TV shows, like we said earlier, it just feels really graphic and lurid. Like, in that Grudge TV show, there's, like, a rape scene that starts at the end of the first episode, and it's really fucked up. And we were like, oh, wow. We, I, like, shut it off. Well, that's the thing. We were both like, wow, that's fucked up. Do we want to keep watching this? And I was probably, I was like, well, let's just start the next episode and see what happens starts episode two they show you the rest of the scene yeah and then that's when we were like okay no fuck this like yeah and it's like who is this for yeah i'm just like so sick of it yeah you know because it's like okay it's like the worst fucking thing that can happen to someone yeah one of the worst things yeah you know and it's like like i feel like the sopranos handled it semi well yeah like okay like it wasn't i didn't feel that it was necessary because this woman's life already fucking sucks yes but then like they used it as like a reason for her to think that like maybe it was like fine for her to be like treating this like murderous criminal yeah 
because she could like send him like after this guy and he would kill him. Yeah, for sure. Like it changed her relationship to Tony. So like, and she also like moved past it. Uh huh. It's not her whole character. And like that's what sucks is when that like. Like, on 13 Reasons Why, like, that's why... I'm pretty sure that's why the girl kills herself, because she's assaulted. Oh, no. And it's just, like... I just wish that if people are going to write this shit, they can, like, write someone, like, coming out the other side. Like, not as a ghost. Yeah. Because it's just, like, for it to be... I don't know. It's just, like, so, like, unfair. And you know it's all just fucking, like, gross dudes writing this shit. Yes. And, like, that's what gets me. Yeah. Because it's like, no, you don't have to, like, end your episode with a rape and then pick it up in the middle at the beginning of the first. Like, we fucking get it. Yeah, yeah, we get it. It just, like, oh, it just makes me so mad. And there's no, I feel like there's no equivalent for you guys, for, like, men. Sure, yeah. There's nothing, like, as horrifying. Yeah, no, not really. And it's just, it's just fucking sick. Yeah. It's just sick. I'm feeling mad now. I feel like this isn't even about Netflix anymore. (laughs) Well, no, I think the thing that I always try and say on this show, and I've tried to bring up multiple times and to remind people of, because for whatever reason, and I won't even get into this because we'll be here for another fucking hour, is like within the realm of video games. And I do think it's important to center it through that lens because we're talking about adaptation like adaptations of video games so the people watching it are most likely familiar with video games right and maybe are people who play video games you could say they are possibly gamers in the realm of video games people for some reason maybe it's because they're made by many people and they're complex like creations people always like to decenter it from like authorship like they always like to forget that like there is agency. Somebody made this and made this choice and wrote this story and created the world. And then multiple people after it were like, this is good. This is good. Yeah. So I always like to bring it back to the fact that like, this was created by people. And the reason that's important when you're talking about issues of like objectionable content or like sexual assault or things like that is because it's in the eye of the beholder and it's in the way that it's presented. So somebody made the choice about how to present this event and then there's somebody watching it. So I think that's why it's important to analyze things like detention where it's like, okay, the people who made it chose to present an adult grooming a child as like a beautiful, positive thing and just as love. And then there are all these people watching it who are choosing to kind of go along with that or at least not find it like viscerally horrifying and objectionable. And so that's why I think it's really important to analyze this stuff because it's like, no, like that's actually a wild choice. And like, that's actually a totally cracked way to look at this story and view it. And like, that's, and that's why I think you like to talk about that issue so much because it's like, you are kind of like, flabbergasted and frustrated and at a loss as for why it's just continually acceptable to just be like oh yeah we're just gonna show this yeah or like we're just gonna keep using because like somebody wrote this somebody wrote the plot came up with the story and then a bunch of people decided how it was going to be presented and portrayed so it's like no like that needs to be broken down and criticized and taken apart because like fuck that yeah i just like can't really comprehend like wanting to send 
things that are so like destructive like into the world i guess yeah for sure it's just like a fucking bummer and like that like so many people like work on a movie or like work on a tv show and it's just like unacceptable and i've said this like so many times like so many times and i know people are like so sick of it probably but like hannibal is the most like horrifying fucking television show that i've ever seen yeah and there is no sexual assault yeah and like it's like i guess it's like kind of like implied with like that brother and the sister that he might be like abusing her oh oh sure but it's not like but yeah i mean like there's no rape scene in all of hannibal yeah and like that show like i will still occasionally have nightmares about things i've seen on hannibal yeah that show is crazy and there's even like there's like sexy cannibalism and there's still no (laughs) sexual assault and we now have seen a real life quote-unquote sexy cannibal and we know that it's not cute and it's it's very disturbing yeah and And it's uh, very abusive yeah but somehow hannibal like wrote it as a fiction in a way that's like yeah i don't know respectful it feels weird to call hannibal respectful but it like it's just i don't know i just think that shit is like such a cop-out and like characters committing suicide like sucks and i i mean like yeah obviously it sucks but it's like bad writing also like netflix handled it so poorly because they have like a content warning for smoking oh yeah but like not for like suicide i think with suicide it's a similar thing where it's like it's so much in how you present it and how you like show the you know the character and like all these sorts of things that change like how the viewer interprets it um and so yeah it's it's once again it was i've i mean i've read and watched and seen lots of things where people like commit suicide but the sabrina one was so shocking because it was so casual and it was like yeah it was so like smirky oh i walked into the ocean for you baby yeah like she's like oh welcome to wherever i am she's not in heaven (laughs) she's in a fucking white room her whole thing is like she's like the devil's daughter and she's like can like go to hell all the time yeah it's so weird also weird i guess that there's like an afterlife at all on that show oh uh, well yeah in the last season they just throw all the rules out and they're like um we have telepathy and we can see the future and there's an afterlife and there's like hp lovecraft is real yeah and you can put a squid real okay you know what (laughs) okay first of all fake news second of all (laughs) he was a real person i am not over this one plot point and i can't get over it and i'll never get over it which is that the same dude who fucking offed himself and apparently had a great time doing it uh survived the vacuum of space by taping a squid to his face yeah well like the squid just like sucked onto his face yeah the squid was like breathed into like the squid's like butthole the squid was a racist horror squid and you can apparently tape one to your face and survive in space yeah, but Sabrina will die from, like, one cut. Yeah, she she got and cut. And you bleed the most from your collarbone, apparently. Yes, that's also facts. That's science. Science facts. God. Yeah. Oh, you know what was cool, though? What? Uh, how the aunts from the, uh, the TGIF show made a cameo. Oh, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. That was pretty funny. <laughs> I bet that, that was just for all the old people that watch it like us. <laughs> All the teenagers are probably like, what? Who's that? 
Adaptations are hard. I don't envy anyone who's tasked with taking something that works in one medium or format and porting it over to another. It's a seemingly impossible task. Trying to make it work while also trying to retain what makes the franchise special in the first place. I think to me the key ingredient is respect. If you respect the source text and you understand it well, you're probably going to make something cool. And you're going to make something that speaks to people because it has the same feel as the original. It gives people the same emotion that they first had when they encountered the franchise. I think that's kind of what we learned today. You know, the first Silent Hill movie is great because it was made with a lot of love for the franchise. It's not perfect, it has missteps, but it comes from a good place. It's got heart. It's plucky, if you will. Ditto for the first adaptation of Detention. The film is great because it understands the politics and the emotion that drove the original story. However, the new adaptation just does not. It feels like it was made by people who just were willfully ignoring the message of the original story, and it just hits a bunch of weird notes and doesn't stick the landing. We're going to get more video game adaptations as time goes on. Honestly, with how big video games have gotten, I'm surprised that we're not getting more. But my hope for the future is that we get more heartfelt, honest works of art that really try to engage with an audience on an emotional level. Works that take the stories that they love and recontextualize them and maybe show them something cool and new within those stories, as humans have done for generations and generations and generations. Anyway, that's going to do it for episode 92 of Zero Brightness. I hope you guys enjoyed this and maybe gained some new insight on the weird and wild world of video game adaptations. I think, if anything, it's just going to get weirder and it's just going to get wilder. So fuck it. I'll see you in there.